a world filled with fast-paced living and constant demands on the aging body, it's easy to forget some of the simplest yet most essential elements of our well-being, hydration and nutrients. As you know, when I'm not in the studio recording a podcast or in the gym or out in the scrub hunting, putting rounds downrange, I'm somewhere in the world on a security gig, putting in the hard yards, ending up on TikTok. So legends that get some, keep me advancing forward, Jocko Fuel Supplements. More specifically, I've been smashing the Jocko Hydrate Sachets, which helps me replenish my electrolytes and other critical vitamins while boosting energy and supporting recovery. Also, just like my kids, my appetite for veggies goes as far as hot chips from the kernel. However, every morning I'll mix a scoop of Jocko Greens, Jocko Creatine into water, which helps me supplement my lack of and delivers all the nutrients for better gut health, immune support, cognitive function, and physical performance. And not to mention, tastes bloody good. So head over to www.getsome.com.au and use the code Zero Limits all in caps for a discount. I'll leave you with this for the day. Hard work, clean fuel, stronger, faster, smarter, better. Let's go. It's time for the Zero Limits Podcast, hosted by Australian veterans. Chatting with high-charging humans with hectic stories from around the world. We'll give you the motivation to take on whatever life throws at you and the kick to complete any goal you set your mind to. Let's go. All right, Zero Limits listeners, here we are back in the studio. We're finally back in the studio to do some more recording. We've got a face-to-face today, which is uh, going to be pretty exciting. And another Australian uh, Defence Force member, uh, he served within the Royal Australian Armoured Corps and then um, moved down the track down later to step it up a notch, become a two-commando operator. I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan. Let's just get him on for a chat to tell his story because I'm just dribbling on pretty much. He did send over a massive bio. It's probably one of the best buyers I've ever received from any any person that we've had on the, on the show, which has been great because it's just got so much information. But Mick... Mate, welcome to the show. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks, Matt. It's good to be here. No, I appreciate you coming down, mate. Obviously, you live north of Newcastle, mate. You know, we, uh, we've we been chatting for quite some time now. You reached out to us, actually, and uh, you heard Muzz's uh, story and uh, Troy Knight, and you thought you might be, you know, you'd be keen to come on and share your side of what you guys did overseas and, you know, your story, your personal story within, you know, the Defence Force and obviously your personal life. So, mate, definitely keen to share this with our listeners and you know in a way this one we're going to just suppress your last name and when we put the photos out obviously we've just covered up your face at the end of the day people are going to get the full story of what you did as an operator and you know within your personal life as well so let's just start right off from the start mate you're born um in central queensland a mighty queenslander which is always a good thing <laughs> mate give us a quick rundown um you know just reading through with your schooling as well you're pretty shit at school which is a continuing theme with a lot of us, always shit at school. I don't know what it is, but then you find purpose with, you know, either in the police or defence force. But, mate, run us off central Queensland. How'd you, how'd you go growing up? Yeah, good. It was, um, it was fairly, it was a very rural area. Um, you know, it was just living out in the bush. Uh, and the school was just, I didn't really struggle with it. I just wasn't interested in it. Like, and I read a lot growing up. Like, this was pre-internet, you know, 
terrible TV reception. Yeah. You know, so I just read, ever since I was a tiny kid, I was just reading all about, you know, non-fiction, first-hand accounts of World War One, World War Two, you know, whatever. And, and just reading that, reading about 18, 19-year-olds, you know, that are slugging it out with the Japs and Kokoda or the light horse, you know, tearing it up in the Sinai, it just made school even more boring. And, yeah, right. And I, I just, I, you know, reading's good for you, but it also, in my particular case, it gave me like a bit of a bad attitude. Like I didn't really respect teachers or anything unless, you know, they'd done anything interesting with their lives, like they were ex-army or they used to race motorbikes or whatever. I just, I just didn't really care about what they had to say. Yeah. Um, so in a way, reading all these books actually made – Gave me a bit of a, you know, <laughs> I just didn't care about school. I wanted to grow up and get out there and, you know, have my own stuff going where, on. Where did the interest of the military come in, though? Like, where, was that throughout schooling or has you got pe- family history? Or? Yeah, I've got a long family history. Like, everyone, you know, they were all in World War One, mm. and I had a grandfather who was a bomber pilot in World War Two. Yeah, right. he, he went down in the jungle and wrote a diary, like, as he was trekking around in the jungle. And he was actually attached to the American Air Force. He was a RAF guy. Um, and I heard growing up, I heard, you know, the stories about him, and you know, he died quite young uh, in the 50s. Um, you know, and just growing up in the 80s and that, there were a lot more World War II veterans and Vietnam veterans around, and they were quite lucid, you know, and you'd yeah. hear a lot of their stories. And it wasn't, you know, when people get older, they tend to, you know, not speak about it, or they just focus on the bad aspects. But when the veterans are younger, you know, you would hear them laughing, you know, telling mm. all the adventures they had in the war. And it was just a natural thing. And it, and it was always in the back of my mind. One of the reasons why the school was kind of paid off is just because I was always going to join the army and that was it. Um, and it was the nineties, you know, <laughs> there was no night vision. There was no high tech. Yeah. It was just, you carry a pack, you carry a gun around and you live in the bush. Like, so education didn't really matter. And, and as a result, um, I, I left at the end of year 10 and went out, um, working uh, on cattle stations as an offsider to like timber cutters, you know, yeah, right. fencing contractors, you know, it was hard work and it was good preparation for when I would join infantry actually, cause we'd go out for like a week, 10 days at a time, camp in a hay shed or something. Mm. And you'd be up at first light, cutting trees, barking logs, digging holes, you know, eating garbage. And then you'd get paid and you'd go back and you'd just have a rad time in yeah. town with a heap of money while yeah. your mates were still at school. And, you know, just basically killing time till I was old enough to join. Cause I, you know, I knew I wasn't ready. I was still 16, 17 or whatever. Mm. But, but, yeah, I was just and, – and motorbikes, that's all we did for our spare time on the weekends after work on days off was just on the trail bikes out in the bush. Yeah. Just, and you grew up in a functional family, mum, dad, Oh, no, the, um, I've got an older brother. Yep. Um, mum and dad separated when I was young. And, um, and yeah, it wasn't until I was um, – it was when I was in one hour, actually, that mum – found another, a good guy, like mm. a farmer. And mm. like, it would have been good if he came along a few years earlier, but you know, but yeah. So separated family, mum found someone new, older brother, and we all did similar things, you know, um, you know, it was just labouring jobs. Um, and yeah, I joined the reserves when I was 17. Um, as soon as I turned 17, I jumped on my um, 1985 XR250 <laughs> and the nearest army uh, reserve depot was 95 k's away. I didn't get a car until I was like 21, and I used to ride this trail bike 95 k's through the bush. Oh yeah, uh, over this range with like, you know, one candle power light. You couldn't see anything. And this is at <laughs> 17 years old. Yeah, yeah. I used to ride over there and do the Tuesday night training. Uh, you know, Tuesday night training was from like seven till ten or something. So yeah. I'd finish work, jump on the bike, burn over there. 
do the three hours of TOETs or throwing dummy hand grenades or tab data quizzes or whatever, and then <laughs> and I'd finish at 10, then we'd go to the boozer for half an hour and then ride back half-tanked, dodging ruse. In winter, it was, like, horrendous because in the 90s, no one knew what, like, you know, warm weather gear yeah. was, you know. <laughs> uh, so yeah. j- just with that little – just to back it up, what was the application process, you know, for for a 17-year-old to join the military at that stage? Uh, so the reserves and the regular army at the time had completely separate uh, training. So, you know, you join yeah. up your reserve unit, you did, you sat your aptitude tests, you know, English writing, all that sort of stuff. Maths was my weak point at school. Um, English, no worries, because I read heaps. But um, <clears throat> we went to Rockhampton and did the testing jumped on a bus or got sent to Rockhampton, and I'm pretty sure I failed that maths test, but back then in the 90s, it was, there was just no mention of it. You know, here's a 17-year-old kid from the bush, you know, who cares if you failed the maths test? That's what it was like back yeah. then. Um, and I'd, I'd failed maths in my year 10 certificates. My plan was always to join the reserves and then transfer over to the regs, you know, to try and backdoor it yeah, yeah, <laughs> without yeah. having to, you know, study. Uh, and, and, yeah, um, and then so we went up to Townsville, and we did a recruit rifleman course. It was 21 days. Yeah. You know, there was no kapooka or nothing like that. So you went up there and that was for the infantry guys. You start off, you know, knowing nothing, marching. Then you do your weapons lessons, first aid, and then you go out and do a little field exercise where you learn an ambush section attack. And then you dig into stage three and then you finish it with, with the 15 clicker march out. Mm. You know, like when you look back at it, you know, 21 days, whatever, but, you know, 21 days you're going from being a civvy and then doing a 15-kilometre pack march, you know. And 17 at, years old too. At, and at Kapuka now, they do six weeks and there's mm. still people they can't get pack fit enough to finish that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I did the 21-day recruit rifleman course, went back to 42 RQR, this little depot in the middle of the bush, um, and I just did that for a while. Um, and it was really good. I really enjoyed it as a 17, 18-year-old, you know, I'd do these weekend exercises um, I used to be able to catch a bus on a Friday afternoon, the 90Ks to the depot, but there was no bus coming back. So mm. I used to catch a bus over there on a Friday afternoon, do the weekend exercise, and then, which would normally be mean trucking to Shoalwater Bay, and then on the drive back, we'd pull in at the bottle over at um, Rockhampton and throw all these cartons of beer in the back of the mog, and then we'd drive back, and it, everyone would be tanked by the time we got back to the depot. Um, it was a couple of hours' drive, and then they would all go home, then I'd I'd walk to this service station on the edge of town and, and pull my pack out, my sleeping bag, and rack, yeah, right. rack, in the, rack in the grass behind the fuel station. One of my mate's dad's uh, was the bread delivery guy, and he'd wake me up at like four in the morning or Monday morning to wake give me you up, a lift. and I'd give the, get a lift back with the bread delivery guy. Um, it was just, you know, it wasn't serious soldiering, but for a 17-year-old, you know, I'd, I'd do these weekends away, you know, do a live fire attack or whatever. And get on the get on the get on the beers, and then you go back, and all your mates back home. Mm. What what they do on the weekend? You rode motorbikes and got shit faced at the pub. It's like, well, I can do that any time. Yeah. Um. So I did I did that for a while. Then I I'd only been I think I'd done probably forty days total. I did my twenty one day um, recruit course on a couple of weekends, and then I went up to Tully and did the jungle warfare course at Tully. Um. And I was in the locker. That is that Tully's, was brutal. Yeah. Um. So, you know, the minute you get off the bus, they load your stuff up and, you, and you're straight up the range. You know, it's meant to simulate, you know, the Kokoda track. And, and even though I'd read lots of books, you know, nothing helps you when you're 17 years old, 65 kilos, you've got the gun, <laughs> you know, it's wet, you know, and you're miserable. Um, but what did help me get through it is because I'd read so much about those stories. It was just my turn now. There were 20, 17, 18-year-olds that went and did this stuff for real, you know. I only had to sit out a 10-day and then it was – 
you know, come on over. Yeah. Um, but that was that was a real uh, wake up. Like this army stuff isn't all just fun, you know. Yeah. And, and looking back on it, it was. I kind of had a feeling that it was the end of an era. Like, you know, there was no night vision back then, you know, Timor hadn't started and things were starting to change from that 1990s peacetime mentality. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm glad I managed to experience that before. Yeah, of course, mate, especially for a 17 year old, you know, I guess it's a little bit different, you know, back, it it is different back then. Kids are different back then. Mate, you were 17, you're 17 years old, riding 250, 95 Ks to train in a military not just cadets, it's the actual fucking military. So yeah. kids are a bit different, mate. And then so for the next couple of years, you're just back in uh, 42 RQR and then you decided to go regs. Yeah, so at the beginning of 99, um, you know, I'd, I'd grown up a bit. All my mates had left home. You know, I was sick of working out in the bush, you know, cutting timber and, you know, doing what I was doing. I was also working at the sawmill in town, which um, – I was the offsider to a guy that had worked there for like 35 years since he was 16. And then he retired. And then when the new guys took over, it was just absolute chaos. So I was just like, oh. So I put my um, app in to transfer to the regs. And you know, it was late. It was 1990s. Paperwork took forever. Um, but then I went up to um, Townsville at the end of 1999 to participate in a exercise Crocodile 99, mm. which is a big exercise. And um, we were at Jazine Barracks there, um, camped out on the um, parade ground. And um, my brother had joined up and was in two RR. And we were having a big piss up because we were going field the next day. The exercise started the next day. Everyone was on the cans. Boozer was open. We were all sitting in the hoochie lines drinking beer. And then he came in and had some beers with us. And um, and then we deployed out on Croc 99 the next morning. I jumped in caribous and flew up to high range. And the whole time I'm just smelling beer. Like, what the hell? Like, everyone was hungover. But I seemed to smell really bad. And then I realized my brother had been crushing the empty beer cans and sticking them all through my pack. <laughs> like, and it took me ages to find them all, you know. It was pretty funny. And it's while we were on um, Croc 99, we were sitting at the one of the airfields up there. Someone pulled out a little battle, battle tranny, you know, mm. a little mm. radio, AM, yeah. FM radio. Yeah. Everyone used to take bush. And that's where we heard um, John Howe and announced that Interfed had gone Interfed, into yeah. East Timor. Yeah, and, right. um, and my brother was amongst them, and you know, I didn't see him again for a while after that. And a lot of people talk about 9-11, about how that was, oh, that was that pivotal moment. Well, for me, that that sitting on that airfield here and John Howard give that speech on an exercise, like that's where it all started for me because Timor was like the build-up for yeah, when yeah, things yeah, got yeah, proper yeah. In, yeah. The, in the Mio. And uh, I already had my application in um, for months, but the once Timor kicked off, there was a mad scramble to enlist all these chocos in a full-time, and it pretty much just happened overnight. So when I got back from Croc 99 – um, I think I was at – I skipped Kapuka uh, and went straight to School of Infantry at Singleton for, to do my ETs. Yeah, um, gotcha. And it just – Timor just all of a sudden overnight the paperwork got yeah. transferred. Next thing I know, I'm at, I'm at Kapuka in a platoon full of Choco transfers and the and the instructors were all old school three-hour hour guys and they hated us yeah. and they absolutely <laughs> belted us. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, it was great. Mate, before we touch on Singo, just just to go back, just for the civvy listeners, a battle tranny is uh, – it's a, it's a portable radio. Yeah. Battle yeah. transistor. Yeah. So if uh, you hear battle tranny, it's not a, what, you, what you probably think it is <laughs> yeah, these days. Yeah, you want to fit one of them in your pack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, you, uh, so you miss Kapuka – which is a good thing because Kapuka is a shithole. Yeah, I knew how to iron a shirt. Exactly. You knew how to iron a shirt. You went through all that type of stuff. But then you ship straight off to Singo, and obviously it's a different ball game at Singo. Now you're 
you know, obviously Singo is directed just for infantry soldiers and now SF boys. Um, it's a different life, as you fucking know. Once you get into Singo, it you become a fucking man pretty quickly. Um, you're only what twenty twenty? I had my twentieth birthday at Singo. Yeah, so you're only you're still pretty young. So how'd you find uh, Singo coming from chocks? Uh, oh, oh, I loved it. Um, you know, we had our ass hanging out. They worked us because we were all dirty chocks. And fair enough, like, you got to do the time. Like, you got to earn y- your place. You mm. just can't have it given to you. Um, we got hammered. We got smashed. And then, um, yeah, and then actually when we finished, we stayed behind to be the uh, the dog's bodies for an officer ROBC course where they get all their range qual- qualifications. Yep. So we actually stayed behind and did, like, two or three weeks of lo- – oh, I can't remember how long just I went for. Just on the range. Yeah, just doing live fire yeah. attacks, and it was great. Everyone was super green and yeah. keen. And then from there, um, went up to Wanara, got posted to Wanara, 1st Battalion. Yep. So how long did you go back then? Ten, ten weeks? Uh, I can't remember. I, I know weeks. I was there from October to the beginning of December. Yeah. Uh, they were chopping and changing at heaps back yep. in those days. It went from six to ten to Yeah, because they kept adding to, things and taking yeah. away things. Yeah. And It wasn't all that long. It was probably six or eight weeks. Yeah. Any uh, notable um, characters there? Um, yeah, and guys that you would constantly bump into over the years, um, but nothing really. We'll, we'll just – Choco's keen mm. to get on with our new career. Most of us knew just to shut up, and but there was just one or two older guys, you know, <laughs> they they brought the heat on themselves being yeah, the experienced it. Choco's that they were. Yeah. Uh, that's, but, yeah. I'm sure everyone got punished for it, not just them. Yeah. <laughs> so what were the choices, one hour, any other battalion? Uh, so there was one, three, and six. Yeah, right. And yeah. Um, I chose one because the, the, uh, one and two hour were part of the rapid deployment ready, deployable, they were like the guys that were online. Always were, yeah. And from the environment where I came from, like, you know, Townsville was Back to Queensland. Shit, you know, yeah. you've got to do your time in Darwin or Townsville, and then once you've done it up there, then you can go to, you know, six or one of the southern battalions. Yeah. And, and my brother was up there in two. And, um, there you go. And if there was going to be a trip, then, you know, that's what one or two are yep. for. They were on, online, so yeah. to speak. So I picked one and off I went. Yeah, right. So you get to the battalion and again, another life-changing experience getting into an infantry battalion, uh, especially in the early, what, 99? Uh, yeah, so I pretty much turned there. I, yeah. I marched into my platoon and pretty much, you know, the 1st of January 2000. Yeah, when so everyone came back from leave, that's there we it. were on 2000. And, you know, political correctness uh, was, you know, pretty much non-existent in infantry battalions, mm. even within the army itself. Um so everyone had to toe the line. How was your reception into, especially, again, coming from Chocos? Oh, well, no one knew. Like, Singo That's was good that good yeah. breakers, that good separation. Yeah. <laughs> so I was just the new guy. Because there were people that uh, were Chocos that missed Singo that decided yeah. not to do fuck. Because yeah. I remember I was a Choco as well, and I got asked, like, do you want to do Singo? I'm like, 100 fucking percent, I'm yeah. doing Singo. Yeah, I knew, I knew a section commander from 42 RQI who went straight up to, <clears throat> sorry, one area, and he copped it, like, which is sad because he was – Competent guy. Good, yeah. But, um, yeah. So I just turned up, just another guy, got put into a company, in an in a alpha company, um, and you're just the new guy. You just had to eat it. You had to do all the shit jobs, yeah. pull on the gun. Bit of um, bit guard duty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so at this stage, obviously, uh, Timor is in swing. Yep. Is there any talk of Timor trips or anything? Yeah, definitely. Up? So 1RL was slated to go at mm. the end of 2000. So we started all the – 
you know, people talk about Townsville, not much happening, but when, when I was there, everyone was like, Timor was going to be World War Timor, you know. So, you know, we did section comp, you know, the big the big 40 clicker or whatever it was, and then we went to Canungra, and then we did all this other stuff. Like, yep. it, it was pretty hectic, all the lead-up training. Um, and then we went to um, East Timor around October 2000, I think. Yeah, right. So you get um, your first trip. How's the... How's the morale within the battalion? I'm sure it's fucking because again we went through that period of the Australian Army being just like a dormant peacetime yeah. military, and then we turned into you know you know you know somewhat of a fighting force and deploying overseas again. And how how were your family as well? Were they supportive? Um, yeah, your brother well, was in as well. So. Yeah, my brother was was back from to, uh, back from Interfet by that stage, you know, and they were going through the whole you know retraining and mm. you know low morale that you always have when you get back from a trip, you know. Um, but I was just too busy, really, and we used to catch up. We ended up, um, once I moved out of the lines, we ended up sharing a house together. It, it was just chaos. Um, but, yeah, yeah, you're right. The one or other, morale was very high. Everyone was keen to get going. In our platoon, we only had two guys that had deployed before. The sergeant went to um, Rwanda, and my second commander went to Somalia. And other than that, everyone was, like, a lid. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So when did you you deploy to Timor? Uh, yep, so we went to the – Timor in October 2000, and we came back after Anzac Day in 2001. Yeah, right. And how was that How was that deployment? Uh, run, so the f- run us through Interfet, because, we, again, we've had a couple of guys on, but they really haven't spoken about the Interfet yeah. trip. So the, the the troubles in East Timor, you know, Indonesian-backed militia causing trouble, killing everyone on TV. So they sent in Interfet was the initial interfen- inter- international intervention force for East Timor, something like that. But then the legal framework changed, and when we went into it, it was called Untayet, transitional or something or other. But anyway, so that when we got over there, um, the first six months, uh, it was very, it was nothing like any of my later deployments. Mm. Like it was like, it was like the odd angry shot almost. We were staying in leaky tents, <laughs> you know, leaky yeah. tents, you get mail once a week, and it'd always be wet. Like somehow it got wet in the back of the mog, you know, you'd have a timed phone call, one phone call home. You know, the food, everyone had this, like the diarrhea all the time. Yeah, yeah. And the first half of the trip, so I went for six months, the first three months, like the, the battalion still had like a training exercise mentality where, you know, we'd do these exercises in battalion where you'd go out and absolutely get flogged, you know, no sleep just for the sake of it, 50% stand to, moving around, massive big long patrols. Like we're doing that. I remember we we just got into country and we went out and did a 10-day patrol straight up, like – no water filtration systems in those days. It was carrying your water. So everyone's packs weighed a ton. And, you know, we're moving around this area. You know, we, we, we strayed out of our AO a little bit, ended up mm. in the Kenyan AO. We went to this village where they hadn't seen any white people or something before. They didn't know what was going on. So we had to quickly get out of there. And then we ended up on the top of this mountain. And this is just the one patrol that really sticks in my mind. And like, everyone was knackered. And then we're getting all these int updates. Oh, the militia are going to be using the creek lines to infiltrate. So we're doing a grenade attack on Maliana like they did when six hours here. So we'd pick up sticks, middle of the night, and move down, you know, move down into this river and then set up like an ambush, do 50% stand mm. to. And then, and then the radio, oh, ints, now they're using the mountain trails. We'll pick up again. And, and everyone was just absolutely getting yeah, right. like fingered like for nothing. And, and about the six-day mark or something, we had to do a water resupps, you know, Security was an issue, you know, like, it was like, you know, they were waiting for the North Vietnamese Army to yeah, come rolling yeah. over. And then I remember, okay, we're getting a resupped, no one had any water left. And then just like on exercise, this Land Rover just turns up with the company company quartermaster just in it, 
with with no security. Like his security was his styre in the rack, probably at unload with a bit of camp paint. And and we and it was just like on exercise. We just filled up all our water bottles. <laughs> And and you know like, oh face out you know security and then the, and then staff would just drive off again. I'm like this is this is just a big exercise. <laughs> and then uh and then after the, about that three months when everyone sort of worked themselves to exhaustion that was when and then we settled into a routine of um we're off the patrolling and we're into like manning the junction points mm. along the border and the and on the bridge um Maliana Bridge and all that. Yep. Um, it, it's it really white quieting down after that because everyone I think realised that hey we live here now. Yeah 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 <laughs> uh, and. There was only really one incident around Christmas, New Year's, where some militia came over and brassed up the people near the village near Junction Point, Charlie. Yep. And we were QRF and we got reacted and a heap of villages got messed up. You know, I wasn't part of the crew that went in and deal with that. We were just doing big sweeps through all the open. The clearing patrols. Um, trying to catch these guys. But And then there was another incident where we got reacted to the border where one of the other platoons got in a, a, a bit of a stash and we went and did these big blocking forces along the border with mm. East Timor, uh, West Timor and all the militia on the other side, like goadiness and, you know, yelling insults. And other than that, it was it was just peacekeeping. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you finish that deployment, you get back to Townsville, you're a cashed up dig, you know, got your first gong. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep. How's the, how's the morale in the battalion? Obviously everyone's just fucking green and yeah, um, happy days. Yeah, and, and then uh, you know, all, all us – Young diggers, you know, support comp, support mm. company noms went in, um, but yeah, came back with cash when I bought a WR four two six. Of course you did. Of course, you know. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, that's a trail bike, um, <laughs> and then uh, yeah, everyone put their support company noms in. I put in for recon. Yeah, and um, and yeah, but I'll go back a bit. Uh, halfway through, um, halfway through the trip in East Timor, uh, we got a heap of Rios marching. Yeah, gotcha. Around Christmas. Yeah. So we'd been there three months. We had three months to go. And in amongst those Rios, there were two guys called Jason Brown and, and Josh Porter. They'd gone through Singo mm. together and they came into our platoon. And uh, Jason Brown went to one of the other sections and Josh Porter got put in our section. Um, two top blokes. Um, Jace Brown, his father was um, a 1RR veteran. And so Brownie, he was similar to me. All he ever wanted to do growing up was be a soldier, and, and that's the only job that mattered. And he was, like, so proud to be in one of our same battalion that his father was in in Vietnam. And then there was Josh. He was not far from Newcastle, and he was, like, um, he wasn't so much army mad like Jason and I was. It was just he treated the army like a big sports team. Yeah. You know, he was into his sports. He was into his boxing. You know, he had the gift of the gab. He was a captain of the one of our soccer team you know, very soon after joining, you know, and he just treated the army like he was a professional. Everything he wanted to do had to be the best. And, yep, he, and yep. it just so happened that at the time I'm doing the army, so I want to be the best. And, and these two guys slotted in really well. And Josh was in my section. And um, and when we got back to um, Australia and our noms, we all put in for recon. And um, Josh, Jason and I ended up passing, doing the recon course, and we all went to one of our recon at the end of 2001. Oh, Jason came a couple of months later, I think, but Josh and I went to recon between the end of 2001, um, and Jason ended up joining us a couple of months later. Yeah, right, and obviously um, you become fucking real good friends with the, with the both. Yeah, well, we'd, we'd been to team all together, yeah. and, and then we ended up getting put in the same recon patrol. Yeah, um, right. After, it was a few weeks of shuffling around, and then Jason... Josh and myself got put in 6-3 Alpha and the team commander was another experienced guy and then we had Todd Langley 
take over yeah, as um, yeah. patrol commander. And the, and the tool I see was a guy called Harry, another awesome dude. Uh, he ended up going to 4RR as well. Yep. And then he ripped out, and we got a guy called Andrew. Andrew, another legend um, around the battalion. And so we were 6 3 Alpha. Todd Langley was a patrol commander. I was mm. a scout. Um, Josh was the SIG, and Brownie was the medic. And the tour C was um, Andrew. And we managed to stay together for like two years, which is pretty yeah. unusual for yeah. a recon patrol not to get mixed around. Yeah. And um, yeah. And Todd was, I'll just talk about Todd briefly. He was, um, you couldn't tell by looking at him. Like he was, we were all in early 20s. He was considered old. He was like 26 or something. But he just, he was just a big guy. And he, and by looking at him, you wouldn't think he was like super fit, but he was fit and he, he never seemed to fatigue. His, uh, you know, he used to do PT sessions in the recon cage if nothing was happening. Like he'd be doing torsion bar circuits while watching the TV, drinking beer, like a middle of, we hadn't knocked off and he'd just be drinking beer, doing a, you know, PT session in the, in the middle of the day. He had a really good uh, sense of humor, which um, I don't think a lot of blokes got. Yeah. And they didn't know how to take him, but I don't know. I got on really well with Todd because all he cared about was going out bush. Yeah. Like, and it, the things that he didn't like, I didn't like, like battalion sport. When it was battalion sport time, like we'd go hide, like I had no interest in any of that. Um. Yeah, he he was a really good guy, um, and yeah, that was our patrol. Yeah, mate, we'll definitely touch on the boys. Obviously, just for the listeners, Josh uh, was killed um, you know, down the track in a Black Hawk crash on the back of uh, a Navy ship, which I'm, you know everyone's probably seen the footage. And then uh, Jason and uh, Todd were both killed in Afghanistan, which we did touch on. Jason Brown through uh, Andy White's uh, podcast, uh, he was he was ultimately there that incident but we'll definitely touch on that down the track um so you're in rear comp platoon you, you you've got your legs shaved all your boys got your legs shaved apparently <laughs> <laughs> and you get your second tour to back back to timor yeah so um we deployed to east timor in uh march of 2003 uh as a recon patrol so and by this stage you know the tents for us was done away with a lot of accommodation had turned up um so we were at Moliana, which was like this base that just got built out of nowhere behind Maliana. It was purely for like the Untired, whoever they were called at the time. It was like that's where the Blackhawks were based and all that. So we'd do – our battle rhythm was basically we'd do a five-day patrol, whether it be like an OP mm. or a searching task or a combination of the both, which was terrible because then you had to pack for both an OP stores and a searching patrolling task. Um, and then you'd come back for like a four-day period – of rest and yeah. and within that four days we'd normally go to the range at Meliana and practice break contacts and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, so it was it was it was busy. Ha, was ha, really busy. Ha, like just just for a reference, how big is your like a recon section? Uh five guys. Five guys, five and you're just going yeah. out doing your own thing. Yep. So if it was an OP, you'd get inserted by Hilo. Yep. Generally, depends where you're going. Uh, along the border, would generally be Hilo, and I'd do lots of like false drops and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, of course, and, yeah. and then you would set up watching border crossings, looking for militia coming across, illegal trade and yeah. all that sort of stuff. You're basically just an early warning for anything that's about to happen. Yeah. Um, and how, how long was that deployment? Uh, six months. Six months. And fuck it. So how many, how many fucking patrols? I think from memory, I think we did 14 five-day patrols. Yeah. And again, there was no water resupps. So we're carrying five days worth of water. I still remember it was two and a half litres of water a day. Um, so you do the mass times five. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, your break, your rat packs would break down to like down to nothing if it was a searching task because you got to carry it. 
Um, but if it was an OP, you might be able to take a bit of extra stuff because you're not going to be stomping that far and then hopefully yeah. and then setting up your OP and just laying there for five days, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, just backing up. Uh, actually, sorry, during this deployment, no, it wasn't. It was actually back to 2001, mate. Obviously, September yep. 11 yep. happens. This oh, yeah. is, a, a, again, throughout all our podcasts, most of our Army guys, the defining point, it changed everyone's fucking lives and yep. subsequently yours because, you know, two of your, you know, three of your, you know, good friends were killed, you know, down the track because of the events that happened on September 11. Mate, run us through that day. Where were you? Because yep. it's cemented in everyone's fucking mind. Yeah, so we were back. We got back from um, East Timor in April, and then September 11 was obviously in September. So we were getting ready to start our support company course. Um, and I remember waking up at home, turning the TV on. Oh, look at that. You know, planes mm. crashing. And then we just went to work, and they gave us a bit of a heads up of what had happened. But my standout memory of it is, you know, where Laverack Barracks is, Tand was only small. You'd see planes fly over all the time. Yeah. So every time a plane would fly over, some some hilarious person would yell out, look out, <laughs> look out, run. And oh, no. that's all I remember. Yeah, about. right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Typical army. <laughs> but obviously, you know, a few months later, SASR are fucking deployed. So, yeah. you know, that's, again, that's when it started, you know, pricking ears up of, you know, young infantry digs going, fuck, here we go. We're, we're you know, probably going to get a trip down the track. Mm. So you you get back from your, your second tour of uh, East Timor, again, all cashed up. And, uh, had, like, how was the, again, back to back to the battalion, everyone's just like, fuck, here we go. We're just, we're just, we're cashed up digs and deployable yeah. digs. So, um, well, this stage, we'd all been in recon between now for, I think, about three years. So we senior diggers? Yeah, we all got told when we get back from this trip, all, all diggers are getting promoted and posted back to a rifle company. Yeah. And and it was just like, ugh. Yeah. You know, nah, no, I, I didn't want to do that. I'd been in the battalion like, well, five years or something now. Uh, that was a long time for me. I wanted to travel and, and I didn't want to go back. I wasn't ready for any sort of, you know, two IC, rifle company mm. stuff again. I just wasn't. You know, it was a pretty long trip and I just wanted to go do some traveling and I eventually wanted to go SF. Everyone was saying, yep, we're going to put our apps in. It was like, I was still, I was very light when I got back from that trip. I was like, well, I'm not ready to do that yet. I, I knew I still had a bit of growing up to do. I wasn't mm. ready, you know, and I wasn't, I got to put some weight on. Um, so I wasn't ready for SF and I definitely didn't want to go back to a rifle company as, a, you know, as a tour I see, you know, I just wasn't interested. So I um, transferred back to um, the reserves. Back to Chucks. Um, and just basically travelled around Australia, just doing random stuff for about a year. You stay in Townsville? No, no, I travelled. Oh, I went, drove all around Australia. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. So what reserve unit did you? Uh, I went to 9 RQR. Oh, yeah, down um, Brisbane. Because the 42 one mm. had, like, shut down, I think. Yeah, gotcha. Um, and I just went inactive for a year, um, and it was the best thing I did because I managed to maintain all of my accrued time towards my long service. Yeah, like, gotcha. If I just cut, if I... Pulled the pin all together, Separated, I would have yeah. lost that five yeah. years. So um, after 12 months of travelling around, I settled in Brisbane and put in my app to get back in because um, I just wanted a break. Um, and by this stage, you know, the war on terror had ramped up and, you know, certainly a- did. after doing civvy work, I was just like, man, I'm, I want to I be part of this. No more team or I want to get over, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan mm, in the works. So that's it. Iraq's on it. kicked off. Um, so after it. So after a year when I put my app to get back in full time, I was talking to guys up at Wana and I wasn't really interested in hearing about what was going on up there. It was like, ugh, because they were talking about sec debt, you know, infantry, mm, mm. 
infantry attachments going to SecDet, which is the security detachment or ARC, set in Baghdad from memory, I think. And the grunts are basically just doing pickets, whereas the CAV, the, the cavalry were in the Aslabs and they were burning around mm. Baghdad having a rad time. So it was like always anything military, always had an interest in it, um, especially armoured warfare, especially at World War Two, like sitting inside a tank, holy moly, like Normandy and all this sort of stuff, crazy. So I always had an interest in armoured warfare. So, and after talking to a 2CAV guy who just got back from SecDet, talking about driving flat out through Baghdad, you know, you know, I was like, yeah, I want to get me some of this. So I, I transferred. And also, too, you're right, uh, SOTG were doing long-range vehicle mm. patrols at this stage. You know, I always had at the back of my mind that eventual SF goal, and I thought, well, I've done the grunt thing. I've done the OPs. <laughs> I don't want to do any more of them. Uh, you know, if if the SOTG are, are now doing long-range vehicle patrols, mm. well, I'm going to go to the cab and, and brush up on some, you know, vehicle movement and, and mechanics side of things. And so I core transferred to the Royal Australian Army Corps. How was that? How was that pro- uh, process? Oh, was long it, and painful. Yeah, You're dealing with so, schema yeah. and schema. Yeah, they'll, they'll pains. Yeah, and so I think on February the sixth, two thousand six, pretty much two years to the day from when I left one area, uh, I re-enlisted into the regular army mm-hmm. as Armoured Corps, and I went down to Puckapunyal um, to do the Royal Australian Armoured Corps initial employment training for ASLAV. So the ASLAV is the um, eight wheeled. Reconnaissance vehicle that, yeah. the, that the army has. Yeah, of course, of course. And so you get down to Pucker, <clears throat> good old place. Mm. And uh, how was it down there? Because obviously you've already done your time with as an infantry soldier. You're down there, and I'm sure there was just a lot of brand new IETs down there. Yep. So yeah. So you were. So I I re- rolled into a group of guys that had all just come from Kapuka. And they were like, oh, you know, there's this random guy turning up with this pack that's been like painted with house paint. Yeah. You know, leaves painted all over it. And um, yeah, so that was lots of questions, you know, just like, at the end of the day, like, yeah, I already had a trade and I had a skill, mm. but I didn't know anything about the cab. No, fuck no. So I was learning just like yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. You know? um, a good thing that got me out of it was I got out of all the guards. So guards are plenty down at uh, yeah. Armoured Corps. I think I did one. Um <gasps> And were, other guys were getting smashed, like getting a guard every mm. second Saturday, and so so that was good. Um, yeah, while this was while I was uh, re-enlisting and doing my thing, um, Jason Brown went did four R R commando selection or two commando was called four R R back then. Yep, he he was now in four R R. Josh Porter had gone to S A S R and was in, was deployed on one of those early S O T Gs, pretty much straight up off his rear. And uh, Todd Langley had gone to um, 4RR, which later became 2 yeah. as well. So everyone had gone SF. Uh, Andrew ended up doing his own, achieving his own stuff in 1RR, the 2IC. Mm. Um, he ended up winning Dog Squad one year, like oh, absolutely yeah. smashed yeah, right. it. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, and then um, and then went and got a job in the mines, you know, as yeah. a, a H&S, yep. just yep. Goes fishing. You know, he did everything he wanted to do, like top bloke. So while I was down at the pucker <laughs> – uh, the rest of the boys from 63 Alpha are all doing SF stuff. So I'm like, that's okay. I'm in no hurry. Like, I'm no brain surgeon. I'm no rocket scientist. I'll just take my time and get where I need to go slowly, yeah. one step at a time. You know? And ha- how long was the school of uh, Armoured? Oh, long. Uh, it was like 12, 13 oh, weeks. Oh, was it? Oh, yeah, shit. because you got you got to learn the driving, the servicing, and then there's a gunnery phase, and then there's a comms phase, like the radio fit out in the in the Armoured vehicles. It's ugh, complicated. Mm. You know, then there's a gunnery phase and – you know, so it's quite long. Um, Be fun though, wouldn't it? Uh, parts of it. Yeah. Um, 
it was good doing something different. Yeah. But um, no walking, which is a good thing. No. Yeah. No, um, the PT was funny uh, because <laughs> PT is not a big thing in yeah. in, in the in the cab. <laughs> yeah. Whereas uh, coming from Grants, like recon, but recon, recon course is like a mini selection. Yeah. Like it's pretty brutal. So pretty fit. And um, the PTI down there was trying to put a case forward that they needed to do more PT during the CAV IETs. So he made everyone do a BFA on the first day mm. and then a comparison BFA at the end to see how everyone's fitness had actually dropped off. It did. And uh, so I remember like I got to like – 54, 60 push-ups or something, and he told me to stop. That's it. I'm like, what? Come on. He goes, don't answer back, I, Tim. <laughs> he was trying to get the stats down, and he had this rule of no swearing in PT or, or there would be punishments. And because of the PT sessions were so, like, they weren't much, I would, like, just randomly swear on the top of my lungs, like, fuck. <laughs> he goes, oh, who swore? You know, another 20 push-ups. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was long, and it, it eventually ended, thankfully. Yeah, um, yep. So you, you march out and then you get posted to second 14 Light Horse up in uh, Brizzy. Yeah, so, um, yep, went to Brisbane, second 14 Light Horse. Um, they were originally a carrier, mm. M113 carrier, and, they, yep. and they'd been running the ladders for a couple of years now. It's kind of the silent achievers of um, the Armoured Corps at the time. Mm. Like 2Cab used to get all the, uh, you know, all the accolades and, yeah, and 214 yeah. will just be chugging away in the background, yep. you know, and they really switched. The, the troop that I got marched into had only just got back from Sectet and, uh, you know, their, their gunners and their drives are all over it. Crew commanders are all experienced. Yeah, I actually, I did work experience, school work experience at 214 back in 2000, year 2000, I think it was. It was a good, good two weeks off school, cruising around APCs through Inogra. Yeah, so with the, I'll just... Casimir doesn't really know the the lab's an eight wheeled reconnaissance vehicle. Yeah. It's not a tank. It's not an armored personnel carrier. It's we'll, this reconnaissance. We'll throw scroll. some photos up just for the people that don't understand what they are. Yeah. So um, and they float too. Yeah, they're they're amphibious, yeah. so you can seal it all up and yeah. turn on the props they've, and they've sunk rrr, a few. Off you go. Apparently, and off, off you go. They've sunk a few in the time. Yeah, <laughs> but but that was um, that was learning a whole new skill like um. I think when the Americans designed them, they were designed to be like they roll off the beach, hit mm. a road, and they just go flat chat and secure like crossroads. Whereas Australians being Australians, we use things for what they're not designed for. And we were driving them off road through yeah. the bush, you know, and we were doing what they call battle runs, which is like basically an ASLAV. It's, it's section attack for every, all the grunts out there, exactly. but with vehicles. Yeah. So, you know, you're doing That's fire and cool. movement. So a, a vehicle would park in a good fire position. They'd send a quick, you know, half gun, half visual report, what they can see. And then the other vehicle would move forward while that vehicle was providing fire. And when they're firm, they'll give a firm report, you know. So, and, and initially it was quite difficult, you know, because you can have the spatial awareness of the vehicle. You've got to be able to drive as you're looking through your silly little periscopes. Like you can't see anything through these periscopes when you're all buttoned down. Uh, you know, you've got to try and look out and you've got to try and find a space in the trees on your axis of advance where an ASLAV can actually fit through. Mm. And, and you've got to be aware of where the barrel is at all times. So, the gun, you know, in a gun car, there's a 25 millimeter cannon on top, and that thing's moving around. So, the gunner's constantly saying gun six, gun three, gun 12. So, you've always got to remember in your head which way the barrel's pointing because you don't want to drive in between two trees while the gun's at three o'clock yeah, or nine o'clock. Yeah, I'm sure that's or, happened too. Oh, yeah, heaps. Cause it, and it ruined, you know, it's not good. Obviously. No, yeah, that's an L and D. So, you know, vehicle awareness, the fire movement, the way I learned to deal with it was just, I just treated, 
like when I was patrolling on foot. So, you know, my, I'm here now. My next bound will be over there. You know, what happens if I get contacted now? Where am I going to move to? You know, once I've got that sort of mentality, just treat yeah. your vehicle like you're doing a section attack, then the whole moving through the bush tactically came a lot easier. And But sometimes, because you're in the, you know, you're buttoned down under the hatch, sometimes like within five minutes of doing a battle run, these things might go for 40 minutes. You know, you're, you're knocking trees over, knocking shrubs over. Like a, a top of a tree might snap off and then land on top of the lav and completely cover all your periscope. So you've got zero visibility, none at all, and you can't open your hatch and throw it off or the gun, the gun, you can't fire the gun mm. when the hatch is open because it'll split your head open, the concussion. So you, you're going completely off the, the crew commanders directing you, you know, forward, advance, left stick, right stick, halt, maintain, you know. So you completely drive. I've done whole battle runs where you're just looking at Blind. leaves. Like yeah, completely right. blind, yeah. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a skill, like a good, a good drilled armoured vehicle crew. Yeah. Like, I take my hat off to them. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah fuck. I've been in the lab a few times. Um, so obviously Afghanistan at that stage is has kicked off for regular the regular army. Reconstruction Task Force uh, 2 is panelled for you guys, Yep, uh, which is essentially uh, what a company plus, <coughs> company plus, you know, company of infantry plus uh, vehicles and engineers, obviously. Yep. Uh, that was the whole point of the Reconstruction Task Force to go to Afghanistan, build schools, help build everything in uh, yep. Tarankat and Uruzgan province. Yep. So you guys get the the go ahead. You're getting ready for RTF2. How's the lead up training for this? Uh, yeah, it was... Intense. It, it went for a long time. You know, two CR was the combat engineer regiment that was running it, and Delta Company One R came down with an element from B three four cavalry up at Tanzel, and they had the Bushmasters, so they were the lift capability for the for the for Delta Company. Um, and our troop from two fourteen, we had a troop plus. Actually, we had an extra gun car and an extra PC variant, personnel carrier variant, um, and we just all came together, and we just seemed to do one build up exercise after another all around Queensland. Um, yeah. So RTF one was the initial mob to go over that was over winter. And, you know, they, due to the snows and that, you know, they were initially just setting up camp, doing all that sort of stuff. And RTF two, we were going to be the first regular army contingent in Afghanistan over, over a fighting season. So yeah, right. the, the build yep. up was quite um, intense. Yeah. How long was pre-deployment? Oh, it would have, been, it would have been about six months or Six so. months, yeah, yeah. Shit. yeah um, shit. And that's all throughout Brisbane and Shoalwater Bay. Yeah, we went up to Shoalwater Bay. I think we went to Tin Can Bay for yeah. a bit. Um, I feel sorry. Like the 1RR guys, because 2CR was Brisbane-based, you know, 1RR came down and spent the whole time. Yeah. Down here. You know, yeah. Typical 1RR just, you know, copped it. But, um, but yeah, while all this was happening, um, Josh Porter had got back from um, – he got back from his SOTG rotation and I'd caught up with him and Jason, because mm. Jason was in 4 I had his SAS selection in to jump over. Um, and we caught up a couple of times, over, had a few beers and whatever. And um, he, uh, I was at Brisbane, he was right into his um, real estate, loved buying and selling houses, like up at Tansville and me and Brownie were just living in the lines or whatever. Like he bought his own house and was mowing the lawn yep, and doing yep. the gardens. He loved all that stuff. You know, I, I bought my first house at Brisbane while I was there. And so he he was up at Gold Coast on his post-deployment leave with his family and him and his dad drove all the way up from the Gold Coast the north side of Brisbane just to look at this house that I'd bought. You know, and he spent about an hour there, had a brew, he goes, I've got to get back. So, you know. Said goodbye to him in the see you, mate, and then off he went. And then a couple of weeks later, he found out that his wife was pregnant mm. with their first child, 
And then he got the call to go to Fiji. Fiji, yeah. Fiji yep. was blowing up and there was a heap of Australian nationals over there that they were concerned about. So the ADF spun up a, a task force. They got on the Tobruk or the Manure, I don't know. And they went off into the ocean and just bobbed around in the ocean off Fiji waiting in case everything went bad to go in and, um, to go in and you know, get out any Australian nationals that were there. And um, so while, I was, while we were doing our final mission rehearsal exercise at Shoalwater, when it was all over, I remember we were sitting at range control cleaning the 25 mil on the lav mm. And then we got a, a call over the radio saying that the, the, the ADF task force that was off the ocean in Fiji, a helo, had speared in and there were several guys missing. And I remember thinking, ah, oh, that's no good. I hope, hope Josh is all right. And then uh, went home, back to Brisbane, and then I, was, I remember I was driving in the back gate of an Ogre there and I had a phone call and, oh, it's Jason Brown. And I was, hey, man, what's up? He goes, hey, yeah, that, that one guy that's missing, it, it's Josh. I'm like, oh, man. And I, you know, pretty stunned. We're, mm. all, we're all super close, been together for like nearly four years uh, in, in one hour. Uh, the CAV troop went into work, couldn't really, you know, I was pretty shaken. The CAV troop um, knew that I was, had a mate over there and they just realised what had happened and the boss just said, look, go home. We're doing nothing today anyway. We're about to go on pre-deployment leave. Uh, I went home. Uh, and they took what it took some time to recover Josh's body because he was like two thousand meters yeah, deep or something. Yeah, um, yeah. And it was thanks to our our allies, the U.S. Navy. They had a special recovery ship, and they they recovered his body. And um and they, they had his funeral not far from here, actually, um, north of Newcastle, a couple of days before I was due to fly to Afghanistan. So mm. I'm just really grateful that everything aligned, and I managed to go to his funeral. Mm. And um. And this stage, you know, for me personally, it was it was a, it was a real shock. You know what happened to Josh. You know, pretty upsetting. And by this stage, I'd been in the cav. Well, hadn't even been in the cav a year, I think. But I already, yeah. re- I already realised that you know I didn't want a long term career in this job. This was just something that I was doing for the time being because you know grunt grunt traits and habits are hard yeah. to break. And the army so corps, they're a different. Yeah, one. so I'd course. already kind of decided in the back of my mind that I was going to leave SF. the cav. And eventually go SF. But when I went to Josh's funeral, even though it was such a tragic, you know, get together, just seeing the camaraderie and the way everyone looked after each other and heaps of guys that I knew from one hour had gone over and they were there. It's motivational it, 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 it was just, I was yeah. absolutely determined. There's yeah. no way I'm not going to, I'm going one way or the other to one of the units somehow. So as terrible as Josh's funeral was, it was, that was a big pivotal point in my life where mm. I decided like this is where I'm going after seeing the way they looked out for each other and just you know none of that regimentality was there and so got back from his funeral a couple of days later we went off to um deployed to Afghanistan for yeah right <clears throat> so you fly into Kuwait yep did the Kuwait thing um about a week there, I think it is, just climatizing. Yeah, yeah because holy moly that was hot um yeah. <laughs> dust storms and yeah and then yeah, we, we came, we flew into TK, Tarrant which is where the Australians were based, um, in April. So mm. the, the nights were still fresh and sharp, and the days were starting to heat up um, coming into the first fighting season. And how, do, you, do you remember your 
first flight in. Yeah, yeah, we flew in. Herc, yeah. We flew in and then we jumped on the back of this mog and all the sides of the hills, the bare hills were all covered with the red poppies. Yeah. Like what you yeah, see, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, the war memorials yeah, yeah. and that. I was just like, hey, man, that looks pretty cool. That's cool, yeah. And then we went into the old accommodation that was originally the SOTG com- accommodation and then we got ready for um, our first hit out, um, which was off to a place called uh, Spin Checker. Off to yeah, right. So how long was that? Uh, landing into TK, a week or two? Yeah, I can't remember. Just, yeah, you know, just usual bomb up. Get yeah, ready. you know, do the vehicle handover. That takes quite a time. You yeah, know, signing the vehicles over from yep. RTF one, and you know, getting settled in. And so yeah. you get out on your first job. How's the? How, how's everyone's uh, thoughts and morale? Yeah. So this good. is first time in a fucking war zone. This yeah, is, I remember driving out the, the gate deal. for the first time. It's like yeah. you know, Timor and all that stuff. It was just train. I remember just. That's it. it was just, driving out that back gate near the cemetery. There's where no there Kiwi just cruising around in a four B. No, there. no, no, no. And, and everyone had said there's a spotter that sits up on the cemetery yeah. at the back gate. Yeah. And apparently the SF used to go up in the tower and take pot shots at him. Yeah. But I, I don't know. You could do that back then, but you know, I remember just rolling out that gate for the first time. And and in Baghdad, I think the locals with the Aslavs were kind of like trained to stay away from coalition vehicles. There's none of that in Afghanistan. 2007, you just drove straight into the traffic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and everyone's you know worried about suicide, um, suicide born, um, yeah, vehicle S- born suicide IEDs. I think that's S- yeah, something SV- like that. SVB IED. Yeah, something like that. I've been out for a while now. My acronyms are slipping. <laughs> yeah, a bit, but, but yeah, and it was initially quiet because um, the Dutch were over there, and they That's had right, yeah. they had incredibly restrictive ROEs. Mm. ROEs, the rules of engagement, the the legal framework in which you can you know retaliate or wage war. Um, and the Dutch had a very restrictive ROE, so um, they they would kind of get shot at and would either freeze or withdraw back or have to ask for permission. And so. It was really quiet the first couple of months, and we got told that's because the SOTG had taken out the Taliban leadership around the TK Bowl, so they were kind of leaderless, and they didn't really care about engaging the Dutch because they knew they weren't really doing anything, so they got us mixed up with the Dutch to begin with. Yeah. And it wasn't until sort of two months into the trips, I think, where some new leaders came over from other countries, and... um, and started rousing the Taliban and coordinating attacks that had ramped up, and then... By the end of the trip, every time we went out, there was some sort of contact. Yeah, right. Like, yeah, it, it really ramped up near the end. And what was the areas of operation? You're obviously up to Chora and Bluchy Valley. Yeah, so uh, the CEO of RTF2 was an engineer who went to Afghanistan in the 80s or something as part of a mine clearing yeah, yeah, mission, yeah, a yeah. UN-led. Yeah, I don't know. Much. That was the Russian mines, yeah. Yeah, all the Russian yeah. Mines, so yeah. he kind of, this CEO, he kind of understood the Afghan mentality, you know, you be hospitable and all that stuff, but if you want to fight, we're going to outfight you. So he basically, the STG component was the security task group, which was the element of RTF2, which was to provide the security. So Delta Company 1RR, second 14 light horse with the labs, B34 with the um, uh, with the Bushmasters, and then 2CR had a combat engineer element. Mm. And then there was the engineer task group, and they were the guys that actually did the reconstruction. So like RTF2 came up with an idea that, we can't provide, we can't reconstruct the province without security. So we need to provide security first. So they had a plan of building a series of police, Afghan police and army checkpoints going north towards Chora Pass, which was a an area to the north. So basically all we did, you know, we weren't building swing sets or, you know, stuff like this. It was all just building police checkpoints. So Yeah, gotcha. So basically it was like a template, a four to five day mission, 
you know, the SCG would send an element out first. They would provide safe passage of lines, put overwatch on at the proposed building site. You know, the grunts would, would get out and, you know, actually seek and close with the enemy, you know, yeah, clear, yeah. kill and capture him, whatever. To, and then once the area was secure, the main body would come out with its own independent security and then they would set up like an inner cordon or whatever and then we would be an overwatch somewhere and an SBF, a support by fire position, and the, and the engineers would get out with body armor on and would just work 24 hours a day building a building a like a templated um, police checkpoint. Mm. You know, mm. Hesco baskets are these wire baskets you fill up with rocks. And these guys, and now there were toilet, you know, guard houses. And and they, were, these guys worked their butts off. And, they, and, you know, they were often working under fire. You know, random RPG would come flying over and these engineers would keep sitting there with their backhoes, you know, and <laughs> with all their body armor sweating. Fully armored up too, aren't they? Yeah. All those backhoes and fucking yeah. diggers. Pretty cool. <clears throat> yeah. Um, with that deployment, obviously you said before there was the SVB IED threat and uh, suicide, you know, the man threat as well. Yep. What, what type of int were, I, I know for a fact the int was pretty fucking shit back then. They used to say it'd be a black car cruising around with some dude in a brown robe waiting to kill everyone, and everyone was dressed like that. So. Yeah, yeah, it was like the old the old Corolla. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the white Corolla with a mismatched, you know, with a red door and a black bonnet, and you look out and there's 500 white Corollas <laughs> with red. I don't know where all the red Corollas went, but yeah. they were taking these red doors off. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, or a thirty to forty year old fighting age male with a beard. Everyone is like, "Come on, yeah, that's, that's all the town cat." <laughs> and uh, so throughout that time, um, just just a quick run through on the Aslav itself. Yep. What's an Aslav armed with? So you've got two variants. You've got the Aslav gun car, which has got a turret on the top, which is like what a tank has. Yep. It's got a twenty five millimeter chain gun. Uh, awesome weapon. Completely underrated and. Yeah, it's a great weapon. It's dual fed, so you can, at the flick of a switch, you can feed armor-piercing sabo rounds into it yeah, or right. high explosive from the other end. Oh, fuck yeah. And all it is is a flick of a switch. Yeah. Um, that's the gun car. It's also got a 7.62mm Mag 58 coax mounted inside the turret, which you can use the gunnery systems to aim. Yep. And then on top of that, you've got um, a flex-mounted uh, Mag 58, uh, which, you know, you pop up and mm. use. And then on the sides, you've got these 76-millimeter uh, grenade launchers on the side that you can get fragmentary ones, but they cause just as much damage to the Aslav as everything around it. So we, we only really run the smoke, smoke yeah. which is a lethal weapon in itself. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, yeah. Great, great. And then tool. you've got the patrol, uh, the personnel carrier variant. So it's just like a big box, uh, and it's got the ramp that comes down at the back. Yeah. And you can fit like a brick or four to five grunts and dismounts in the back. And on top of that's a 50 cal, a 12.7 um, quick change barrel machine gun, either with an old manual mount or um, with a remote weapon station, which is re- operated remotely. So um, in the back of the Aslav PC, because it's only got a crew, a tour driver and a crew commander, you need to have situational awareness all around. Mm. So if a vehicle's coming up behind you, like if he's an S, you know, suicide-born vehicle – you know, you can have warnings. So in Iraq, they had what they call was a shooter operator. He was just a, a trooper that would hang out the back with comms with a rifle to wave off cars and to give the crew commander situational awareness of um, any approaching vehicles or lateral roads or, you know, whatever. Uh, when we were in Afghanistan, we started trialling having a shooter, shooter operator in the gun cars as well. So there was a hatch behind the rear of the turret. It wasn't part of the turret. It was part of the hull 
where someone could pop out as well. And we found that when we were stuck in traffic, the gun cars can't traverse down low enough to engage a threat that's right there. You know, kids would swarm the cars yeah, for of course, pens yeah. and lollies. Yeah, and yeah. So we started trialling having shooter operators in the back of gun cars. But there had to be a fair amount of trust because if the if the gunner just went ah oh, and just did a full Spin, yeah. uh, sixty four hundred mil traverse, <laughs> you'd just tear you yeah tear you yourself. Off. But the gunners were all switched on, super experienced guys, so it was never a concern. And and I found myself filling that shooter operator role a fair bit yeah because I was normally I was, I was designated as a driver. But due to the construct, each mission would be slightly different. Some cars would stay behind. We we're going to take all the cars. So if I wasn't dry in a car, then I would be a shooter operator either in the back of the ASLAV, PC variant, yeah. or in the back of the gun car. In that PC variant, it was right next to the fucking exhaust too. Oh, yeah, it was that blazing was fucking, hot. I yeah. did a few times in the GAN and fuck, fucking oh, get yeah, cooked. get cooked, yeah. Fuck, yeah. that was fucking shit. I, I really liked being the shooter operator because um, yeah. it was just a good- it's visual as well. Yeah, and you're not just sitting behind the periscope, you know, you're getting fresh air, but also too, you got SA, what's going yeah, on around you. And exactly. I liked um, I liked giving feedback to the grunts in the mm. back. Like, I just felt, I don't know if any of them even noticed or, but it just felt like they would want to know where they are as yeah, they're exactly. driving around. Because so, yeah. a lot of the times the cab He's guys the don't talk to the yeah. grunts and the grunts yeah. don't talk to the cab it's guys. just music playing. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I don't know if anyone actually noticed, but I felt like I was helping. Yeah. And I was a CFA too from my recon days. So it was a good to have a, an extra medic ready to, you know, yeah. jump out. I never really had to do and anything. But you guys had music hardwired through? Uh, we did. And in, in our gun car uh, – it was my crew commander, Gibbo, top bloke, but he had this iPod that would always pick inappropriate, like, <laughs> music. So it would be in contact and, like, some love song would come on and then you would be in Overwatch where, you know, it's hot because, you know, the aircon, you, you can't have the aircon going yeah. and they're fully loaded. Yeah. But anyway, and some death metal would be, and you'd just be like, man, like, I love metal, but not now. No, there's man, a time there. Fuck, I hate your Wait till the gunfight. <laughs> <laughs> Just run us through your quick, your first, I, I guess, contact. Uh, first contact was um, nothing much really happened. We were just cruising through a village and the enemy chatter, it was very similar early on to in the end, you know, elec- the electronics guys would hear the enemy chatter and then an interpreter would interpret it and then it would be sent out over the net. Like, this isn't secret stuff. Everyone knows this. Yeah. Um, and we were just cruising through a village somewhere, going somewhere north, and then we started getting this um, inch, you know, oh, just shoot at them. They're Dutch, they won't do anything. And then these compound, probably three or 400 metres to our right, fired a couple of RPGs or something, and I don't think they realised what happened. All these these labs just turned, just turned and just levelled and just <laughs> replied in turn. And as we were driving along, um, the grunts popped out and started shooting 40 well, And yeah. it just so – this is the first contact. It wasn't a very big one, but I just remember this one because – we were taking fire from these two compounds and one of the grunts fired a 40 mil from a moving lav, pure luck. And as he fired the 40 mil, because this grenade's moving so slowly through the air, this Talib decided to change fire positions from one compound to another. And as he ran across the open, this 40 mil just landed straight on top of him. Oh. And he, I could hear all the grunts just like, yeah. And like, <laughs> yes, that was the first sort of contact. Yeah, right. And then from then on, that's when they realised, hey, we're dealing with different yeah, this is real. The, these guys, well, the Talibs were like, these yeah. guys will turn and fight. Oh, that's it. Yeah, you guys yeah, will. Yeah, um, fuck. It, and I'm sure you experienced it over the years to come, and hearing it from ICOM chatter that the Taliban always, I wouldn't say feared the Australians, but they were like, fuck, the Australians are here. Let's fucking, let's screw our heads on before we fucking 
you know, attack these motherfuckers because they know what they're doing. Because mm. I'm guessing they were just used to the Americans or the, even the Dutch. Even you know, you know what the Dutch were like, man. They were a bit loose, a bit yeah. loose cruising around in light skinned vehicles and yeah, bit crazy. How about the ID threat, mate? Was yeah. So early on in the piece, um, we straight away started getting into that. Watch out for the white crawler driving around. You know, it's loaded with explosives. It's cruising around Tarrant which is the town just outside the base. Um, looking for targets of opportunity, so keep an eye out. Um, so there was a there was a tempo. There was some sort of mission going on in town, and that we were all getting ready for. And then this group of Ramies, so Royal Australian Electrical Engineer and Mechanics or something, this team of Ramie specialists flew in from Australia to mm. give our cars a once over, and they were famous. I think they're called MAS, but they were famous for just grounding everything. So that about twenty four hours before a mission. That all these old warrant officers turn up and they say, we're doing technical inspections of your cars. And, and everyone was like, oh, no. And sure enough, they grounded them over stuff like – so in, in the hull of the Aslabs, the radio mm. is are sitting right behind you. And um, they've got these little radio knobs that if you hit them or pull on them, the plastic bit pops off. You can still turn the channel because there's a metal switch on there. And because we're wearing body armor, as you're climbing in and out you're of the turret it. all the time, yeah. you're ripping these um, – yeah. rad- So they would ground the car because it was missing like a radio knob. So these guys are just granting all their cars and then, you know, a bit of a know-it-all digger or a bit gobby. I'm like, so what are you guys doing? Oh, I, ter- I hit him up one day. What are you guys doing this for? Like, you know, we're meant to be going out on a job the next day, on the next day. <clears throat> and you're granting these cars and instead of getting forced rest, the drives and the gunners are working all night, putting earthing straps on and, you know, putting a bolt here and a radio knob back on that's just going to immediately get ripped back off. You know, they're working all night instead of doing – Force rest to get these cars up and ready. And these MAS guys are like, oh, it's for your own good. I'm like, well, well anyway. So anyway, all our, most of our cars got grounded and the CAV got used as a dismounted, so an infantry section QRF. So QRF mm. is your quick reaction force. You're normally held in reserve back at the base. So if there's an incident or a heavy tick, you've got a, a force in reserve that can deploy and recover, assist, whatever. So the CAV guys – we were now grounded. We had no cars. I mean, all of a sudden, we're an infantry group. Ugh, a lot of guys were like, oh. <laughs> I was like, yeah. Yeah. And then, um, to it. so anyway, we're sitting there in QRF. And then while this was happening, there was a, a girls' school got opened up at Tarrant So the, obviously under the Taliban, there was no girls weren't allowed to get an education. So a, a girls' school was open. They found some teachers from somewhere and it was a big event. You know, ISAF, the UN or NATO, you know, hierarchy, we're all going to be there. All these Afghan government VIPs were going to be there, all these dignitaries. It was a big deal, the mm. girls' school opening. And it was like Taliban are going to target it. Righto. So we're QRF, um, waiting in the rec room on the base, and the grunts went out to provide security around TK. Um, <clears throat> anyway, everyone's there. Of course, it's traffic jam. So there was a Dutch convoy of what they call YPRs, they were like a, a Dutch armoured vehicle. Um they were drive. There was a big Tina section, and they were driving up towards the centre of the Tina section. And then there was a traffic jam, and they came to a standstill. It just so happened that uh, uh, the dreaded white Corolla, packed full of explosives with a suicide bomber, had just passed him and saw him in his revision mirror. So he tried to reverse back towards oh, no. this Dutch yeah, comp- right. this Dutch convoy that had ground to a halt from the traffic to blow himself up. Realised reversing wasn't going to work, so he tried to do a U-turn, and his back wheels went into the ditch, and he got stuck. Like, <laughs> forward, reverse, forward, reverse. 
And um, I ended up seeing the YouTube late footage later of one of the Dutch vehicles was filming. And um, as he's sitting there trying to jockey himself out of the ditch, all these kids swarm the um, the Dutch compound, uh, the Dutch vehicles with their hands up, asking for bottles of water, pens, lollies, yeah, all that yeah, sort yeah. of stuff. And you can see the Dutch guys in this video I saw, like all looking at, oh look at that, you know, before they really clicked what was happening. And then he detonated himself. Um, massive explosion, huge mess, civ cas, civilian casualties mm. everywhere. There was one Dutch KIA um, burning all the stuff on the side of, you know, packs and that hanging on the side of Dutch vehicles on fire. So the Grunts infantry was nearby. They moved towards the the bomb site to create security, mm. you know, so they could do Kazavak, all that sort of stuff, and created like an outer cordon. And so us CAV guys, we were the QRF. And from memory, I think we got reacted to go in. We, we got reacted to go in to be a security detail for the EOD specialists. So the guys that were making all these, the Talibs who were making that all these bombs, they were trying to create a database. So they could collect DNA from various bombs and link it back to a certain bomber. Yeah. So the EOD guy was specialist was going to go to the crash site and try and find components of the bomb or body parts of the suicide bomber to see if they could collect DNA to link him back to other incidents around the area to try and get some sort of, you know, you know, NCIS, you know, yeah, stuff yeah, in yeah. the lab. Yeah. Um, so we were tasked to be security for this guy. So we all pile in the, the, the labs that weren't grounded and then we drive down there and um, the grunts, we all dismount and we go in and create like an inner cordon because the, grunt, the infantry had an outer cordon, but on the inside of the cordon were family members of all these kids and people that had been killed, like all men, you know, so there's like, you know, old men just sitting there next to the bodies, you know, upset. Um, so we had to create like an inner cordon and, and so that this guy could go around and do his job without getting harassed by any of the locals or the kids or whatever. And um, so there was um, not much shade. It's really hot. And when we got there, it was a mess. There was just body parts, burning stuff. Yeah, right. It was just an absolute How mess. How many kilos? Uh, apparently – 12 uh, civvies got killed, but they probably don't know. Don't know the size of the bomb. I don't, know, they don't know. Yep. I can't remember. They may have known, but I, Big I don't blast. know what it was. But this, this car was totaled. Yeah. There's nothing left but like two axles. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there was body parts everywhere, and we, we sort of set up a cord, and I, I took up a position to the side of the road. Along the side of the road, you know, there's a ditch, and then all these <clears throat> these small trees, like lollipop-style trees. Um and I took up my position and I was standing sort of near a guy, an old guy that was sitting there squatting down, you know, upset because he must have been the grandfather or something of these kids. And um, and he was visibly upset, didn't want me standing mm. near him, you know, like, <laughs> you know, muttering to himself. Anyway, as he, he's doing the Afghan squat and as he goes to stand up, he like slips over and then he falls over into all these body parts and guts and oh. just everywhere. And he's like rolling around. It was like a scene off, you know, Family Guy, you know, like when he's trying to unwrap the cling wrap yeah, and it takes, yeah, it's like yeah. a five minute. Yeah, debacle, yeah. Just trying to get up and he'd fall over and it's smearing all over. And I'm like, oh man. So I'm like, put my hand down, like, come on, man, I'll help you up. And he was just like, nah. You know, I don't speak Afghan, but he was just like, nah, don't want your help. So he's just rolling around and he finally gets up and walks off. It's just as well as he did because then this big gust of wind comes through the middle of the uh, uh. bomb site and all this guts and crap just come falling out of the trees and just splatters all mm. over. Mm. So anyway, um, the EOD guy ends up finding what he believes is the torso of the suicide bomber. So he's pushing that into a, like a sack, a evidence bag. And some of these kids that were like in the inner court and see us – 
searching through body parts and the guy's like, oh, that's no, that's not him, that's not him, ah, we want this bit. So they think we're like the cleanup crew or something or that we're just collecting body parts. So these kids start coming up to me with like a stick, you know, with guts hanging over oh, it, like, hey, you want this? And I'm like, I'm like, nah, mate, don't want it. So that's they're just like, oh, okay. And then it's like piffing it, chucking it. And then like they'd come up with like. How desensitized are those kids? Oh, and there, you know, there was like, this one kid, he was probably about 13 or 14, I don't know, but he was getting a kick out of it. Like I think he was trying to see if he could make me yeah, gross yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, He'd come up with like a skull with like big long hair. It was obviously part of a young girl. And I'm like, mate, I don't want it. And, you know, you know, fuck it off. And then he'd like just piff it. And then, you know, this went on for a while. The crowd started to get unruly. The poor old one, our guys, like they'd been standing in the sun all day. Everyone was stuck. You could tell they were starting to be in the locker. And then the, the Afghan governor, the governor of TK, turns up in his green um, Afghan police mm. vehicle. Yeah. And he's like, gets waved through the convoy and he talks to like one of the second commanders. He goes, I wanted to speak to your commander. And they're like, oh, he's over there. So we all thought he was going to get out and walk over to speak to the, you know, the RTF the yeah, commander yeah. on the ground. But no, nah, he drives across the bomb site, runs over two of the dead bodies. No like, way. Boom, boom, and then the crowd just goes, like you could hear them all yelling. It's like, man, no wonder why no one likes the government. <laughs> just zero fucks. And then we all, um, and then we all just collapsed back in and went back to TK. Yeah. And like some of the guys, um, you know, I grew up in the bush. You know, we used to do our own home kills and you know go hunting all that sort of stuff. So you're kind of used to the side of blood and guts. A lot of these guys, you know, they grew up in cities. They've mm. never seen a dead human before. Yeah, and now of course, all of a sudden yeah, yeah. they're standing in amongst, you know. In amongst everything, yeah. It was a bit of a big, um, it was a bit of a big deal that that led up. So that, that set the scene for another series of incidences that happened over the coming sort of days. Yeah, of and course. Weeks. Um, yeah. So <clears throat> just to, cl- I wouldn't say close off this uh, Afghan tour, but you've got, the contact Iron Fist and uh, contact uh, Barrack Sai. Let's 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 crack on with the contact Iron Fist because you have sent a video through, which I'll probably put up yeah. uh, down the track with um, uh, contact. There. Yeah, so we were we're in a we're in a lav patrol doing something north of um, one hour, and there was a feature called Iron Fist that was a Afghan mm. military checkpoint of some port point. But apparently the the Talibs had come out and taken it off this local warlord. He was part of the highway. Police Seringay was his name. None of them were in uniforms or anything. And um, we were cruising along, doing our own thing, and then we could see this tick in the background, and all these Dutch vehicles just lined out watching it. And um, and I don't know. I was I was a shooter operator in the back of the boss's gun car, so I was kind of in a key spot to so could have see what was going on and hear on the radio. Anyway, the Dutch hadn't got clearance to. So what had happened was Seringay and his mob of highway patrolmen had decided they were going to take back this feature off the Taliban. They were just you know, a couple hundred metres away, KOA or whatever, across the big flat ground. You could see his lone feature. Yeah. Um, and uh, the boss radioed in for uh, permission to go and, and assist, and it was granted. And so that's it. Uh, it was like something – it was pretty cool. It was like something out of an old Western, you know, here come the cavalry. But yeah, the yeah, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. extended line just started – racing across this flat ground to get to this feature. And um, as, we, as we're going across, you know, you'd start to hear fire and all this sort of stuff. Couldn't really see what, much what was happening. And then as we got to the bottom of this feature, all the Afghan um, policemen just started popping up out of the ditches and everywhere and started like running alongside us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so as we're burning flat out up towards the top of this hill, RPGs were starting to, like, starting to come in and race over the top of us. 
And then as we rolled up to the top, all the all these Afghan fighters were alongside us. And as we rolled up to the top, the Taliban withdrew over the feature, and all the lavs just started coming in. Yeah. And then um, and then all the like the the Afghan National Police they come up alongside us. They're firing their RPGs, and and the twenty the concussion from the twenty five millimeters brutal. Like you always get told if you're doing anything, never get in front of the yeah second yeah road yeah. Wheel. yeah. Anyway, I could hear the boss give a fire control order to the gunner over the radio, and. As he's doing that, this Afghan fighter come running up alongside of the car, like a meter, and went to go around. And I'm like yelling at him, like, get back, get back. And then the, the 25 mil fired and the concussion just ragdolled him completely, <laughs> rolled him up and just spun him. And then he all his weapon and everything went flying. And then he just went, like, it fully destroyed his brain. And then he just, like, Ugh, just rolled, ran, crawled, fell, just ran off into the distance and, and disappeared. <laughs> and then – um. And then we all just rolled up there and then, you know, Taliban and, and then we had a big meeting with the, and then the local warlord. We held that position for a while that the interpreters, and then we had this Syringe guy, this Afghan warlord, he had his icon talking directly to the Taliban. They're all swearing at each other, calling each other names and all this sort of stuff. And it was pretty funny. Our interpreter was interpreting it all for us. And, um, yeah, that was, that was Iron Fist. Yeah, right. So it was just a fucking quick dump of fucking ammunition. Yeah, just out of the blue. It wasn't planned or anything. It was good. <laughs> And then, so coming up on the you know the latest stages of the tour, you get into another large uh, contact barrackside. Yeah, so there was this place called Barrackside in the north. It was near the end of the trip, and it was your standard. Um, we're going out there to build a police checkpoint mission template. You know, four to five days. You know, the cav and the infantry with EOD would deploy. You know, twelve hours early, whatever. Safe passage of lines go out to the area surrounding the building site, clear it. So, And then once it was clear, then the main body, the engineer task group would roll up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, once the building was complete, we'll collapse back to the fob in reverse. So in this one, I was driver again in the Bravo gun car uh, with the usual crew. We had our gunner and then we had Gibbo. Uh, we deployed 12 hours earlier. Yep. Uh, as, as we were um, – so the, the, the terrain near Barrackside, so it was basically a, a river and a green belt running north to south with sort of high ground and dead ground, you know, rolling open fields and features, you know, on the east and the west. Yep. Um, the infantry started patrolling north, let's say north, uh, up through the green belt and through, and they, and they were starting to get just sporadic fire when you know, I was you, as we will later learn, it's your classic Taliban of draw, a tactic of drawing, Join, yep. drawing you in. And, you know, as the infantry, you know, seek out clothes of the enemy, like they're, they're moving in. And the cab, we started sweeping out through the desert, through the dead ground off to the west. I don't know if they could really see us out there, but, you know, we were driving nice and so we're kicking up dust or anything like that. And then as, as the day sort of went on, the sporadic firing started to get heavier. And I think, I think some of the first rounds fired were into the ballistic plates of one of the scouts of yeah, the right. grunt scouts. It was a famous picture in the army rag of this grunt. Yeah. Yeah. That was, yeah. I think that was one of the opening yeah, right. salvos. I'll, I'll, I'll try and track that down. I'm sure that's online somewhere. Yeah. Um, I think that was one of the first shots fired on that barracks. eye contact. So we're cruising through the desert up on the, on the flank in the low ground. And then, as the day is going on and the grunts are pushing forward, they suddenly started getting engaged heavily from three sides um, and pretty heavily. And the ICOM enemy chatter was indicating that um, they thought it was another Operation Perth type offensive to the north. So Operation Perth was an early SOTG mission where the SOTG pushed north up into Chora 
and, and the enemy chatter was indicating they thought it was another thing like that. So they were directing as many fighters in the area to move towards Barrackside to counter this, mm. what they believed was a push north towards Chura. Um, and later on afterwards, uh, the, the uh, Apache air crew sort of broke protocol and showed the gun camera footage to the RTF headquarters. And you can just see these lines of fighters just streaming yeah, right. from the north Fucking to the south. Um, you know, so it was a big deal. So these, the infantry platoon was pinned down on three sides. And while this is happening, you know, the engineer task groups, you know, halted, I think from memory, I didn't really know what they were doing, but they were halted back because this was turning all pretty big stash. So then, then the, around this time, you know, I can only t- talk from my cavalry perspective, but I think the in- infantry started to do a platoon-sized break contact to get out of this three-sided Ambush, situation yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they'd found themselves in. And then that's when we got, okay, cavalry, you need to get up there and provide SPF. So we're driving north. Our gun car was in front by this stage. We're in like single file, and then we just right-turned, and then we crest this feature that was paralleling the engagement area. So on the far once we do that right turn, if you can kind of picture our gun car was on the far left. Yep. And then to our right, we had like a PC or maybe the gun boss's gun car. And then we had like an, another PC and then we had another gun car down to the far right of the engagement area. And then behind us, we had like the Aslav ambulance and, and the Bushmasters. And we had a US engineer call sign. It was, this was their nursery patrol, their first patrol out. And they're just like, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> and so as we crest this feature, um, from distances sort of, we look down, it was just like a day at the range. Yeah. Uh, you look down and then from distances to sort of 400 metres out to 1,000 metres, it's just green belt. So, you know, crops of wheat, random trees, mm. low walls, haystacks, sort of the odd compound. It wasn't that, weren't that many compounds in there. And you could just see the grunts peeling left to right back and you could see the Taliban, clear as day, firing at them. You could see yeah, right. RPGs firing, like the poof of it. Of what the, sort of numbers are we looking at in the Taliban? Oh, oh, you can only see two or three at a time. Yeah. But um, afterwards, we got the estimates were eighty to ninety Taliban yeah. killed yeah. on this. Yeah, right. Killed on this battle. Oh, I kept a pretty extensive diary of this, um, so that's just why I'm remembering these. Yeah, things. no, but, fucking um, So, like, when you fire a rocket-propelled grenade, there's obviously a flash, and then there's another flash when it hits or when it self-destructs. So, you know, there's all these explosions going off. There's RPGs landing. The grunts are firing 40 mil back. That's hitting. There's dust kicking up everywhere from rounds going everywhere. And as soon as we crest this feature, like the boss in just classic cavalry fashion, just divided the the engagement area up into tactical areas of responsibility, like arcs almost for each vehicle. Yeah, 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 yeah. And no sooner had he finished doing that, then uh, these two Talibs just walk out into the open and fire these RPGs at the infantry. And you see the infantry, they see, almost like they see this thing coming and they just lie flat and it flies over the top of them. And as soon as these guys did this, the boss gave a troop fire control order. And there's always like a, in the armoured corps world, they're like, oh, a troop fire control order. It never happens. He gave a troop fire control order and three 25mm cannons opened simultaneously up on these guys standing in the open and the first guy just disappears in this flash of uh, orange flame and the other guys got cut clean in half and his torso was like spinning through the air, probably 15, 20 metres in the air and, 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 it, and it just started. And this, yeah. this support by fire position, we were there for um, about 40 minutes, uh, about 20 minutes into it, we get the call that there's going to be a um, danger close. So everyone get down behind cover and we're, we're 
buttoned down in behind our armor mm. anyway. So I'm just sitting there in my in my driver's seat looking through my periscope like some sort of TV show. And then from the south, to the right, this F fifteen comes in super low, like right in front of me. In front of all of us, and just drops this 500 pounder and just into the middle of the engagement area, just boom. And then he takes off. And b- by this stage, um, we've been doing a support by fire for 40 minutes now, supporting this grunt move to the you know to get out of there. Our ammunition's starting to become an issue. Um, you know, a couple of grand of HE and yeah, yeah, you know, a few Sabo, heap of 762s being fired. Um, and we're copping fire back too. So the gun car on the far right. Uh, it was driven by one of the other sergeants, an old 214 legend. Uh, his driver counted 11 RPGs strike within vicinity of his Fucking car up. over a two-minute period. So he popped his smoke, as you do in training, like textbook, just popped his smoke, jockeyed back off the feature and then came back up on another position, in a, in a hold-down position, so just his turrets showing, as you should, and just starts hammering away again like legend. And then um, so we start jockeying back and swapping out, so – Bushmasters or the Ambo or whatever would come and take a position on the firing line and then a car would jockey back so we could do a combat reload. And we trained all this stuff in training. So we jockey back into the dead ground. We're carrying the second line of ammunition in the back. So, you know, drivers, I get out of my hole, go around the back, start passing up liners. The gunner and the and the crew here are like ratcheting rounds in. You know, RPGs have got a when you fire an RPG, they've got a self mm. – well, the RPGs that we were facing, RPG 7 and – Sevens, yeah. They've got, a, they've got a self-destruct at 900 do, metres. Yeah. So you can – so these RPGs are coming over the uh, crest and Lone exploding in, sky, yep. in vicinity of where we're doing our reload. Yeah. You know, so stuff's still happening. And we're halfway through doing this combat reload. This is one of those moments where you sort of think to yourself, I'm going to laugh about this later because – and then the gunner. The gunner was a great guy. never showed any sort of fear. Like this wasn't any sort of like – coping tactic or anything. He was a he had no he was a great guy. He he got he gets oil. Something happens and he gets oil all over his pants and he's like, oh oil on my pants. He, <laughs> and he gets out of the turret, walks around the back, well in the middle of a combat reload and starts like cleaning his pants and, and me and Gibbo, the crew commander, were just like, what? I was like, dumb Gibbo's, you know, obviously he's in command, so things aren't as funny to him. But me being a digger, I find everything funny. Uh, and I'm just like Oh, like this is, <laughs> I can't believe this is really happening. Middle of a gunfight. RPGs are like, pff, pff. and Gibbo's like, Mick, get in here. So I end up climbing up into the turret and continued ratcheting. And, mm. and then I just ended up staying in the turret. And then the, the gunner went round and jumped in the driver's hole. And then we jockeyed back up on a position. And well, this stage is starting to die down. You know, the grunts had extricated themselves there and providing security further to the south. Talibs are kind of realised, I think, hey, you know, we might, um, we don't really, yeah. really mind yeah. that they're here. So yeah. they kind of wind, wound, wound down a bit. Um, and so we kind of just sat in that position. But this stage, it was starting to get dark. So mm. orders came over the radio on how we were going to withdraw. And, um, and you know, it was going to be HF withdrawal was going to be like, you know, 15 minutes after the last light or something like that. Yeah. So anyway, darkness falls. We switched to thermal and I'm scanning scanning and then to the compounds to the left through a gap in these compounds, I can see three or four talibs with like long LMGs and yeah, RPGs, yeah, yeah. like plain as day through the thermal. And uh, it was around 500 meters. So, you know, I didn't have to laser it or anything to get a, a shot onto them. It was all battle engagements. And, um, and I said to Gibbo, the crew commander, you know, gave off a target indication and he just goes fire. And 
all cavalry doctrine, unless you're doing some sort of crazy fire control order, is always three round bursts. Yeah, fuck. I yeah. just let rip with a six <laughs> round burst and just cut th- three of them just clean in half. And one guy jumped off to the side and I see him go behind this sort of low wall about waist height. You could yeah, see him because yeah, yeah. of the angle, you could see him behind there and he still had his RPG and just switched to Sabo, armor piercing Sabo and just put three rounds Straight through the through. wall and then it collapsed and then switched back to HG and raked it again. And then by this stage, HR was only, um, was meant to be like 15 minutes away anyway or whatever. And the boss just said, collapse now. So we jog it off the feature and then, I was like, right, everyone back in your normal positions. So you can, there's a way you can do it in a lab without having to get out. So we yeah. traverse the gun off to the side and then there's this tiny little window in between the, the turret and the driver's hole. And so we're like squeezing through in the dark, like hitting every sharp thing. And then I, I, he got back in the gunner spot and then, and then, and then we drove back and yeah. And, and, and apparently, you know, you can always take these yeah. post, you know, these BDA assessments with a grain of salt, they reckon 80 to 90. Um, yeah, right. Well, at least you got a bit of time on the gun as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fuck yeah. That sounds fucking sick. That's, that's, that's what, that's what, this is what the people love. This is what the people love. Mate, so during this time, obviously you get back to, back to TK, back to uh, Poppy's having a bit of a feed, relaxing. During this time, you've put in your SF, selection, uh, SF paperwork for selection. Yep. Uh, at that stage, obviously, uh, Jace, uh, Jason Brown's already out there and Todd is in yep. 2 Commando, you know, changing the name from 4 hours to 2 Commando pretty much around that, that era, I'm pretty sure, 2007, 2008. Yep. And you've got your application in. Is, is any other boys talking about it as well? Uh, a lot of the grunts, but no no Cav guys. So you were pretty much um, the only Cav guy that was- That put an SF app in, yeah. Well, I suppose yep. you are probably the only one that was from infantry as well. Yeah. 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 So so that deployment ends. Uh, you get back to uh, Brisbane. Yep. And obviously the morale again is just like, you know, fuck, you were another, you're even cashed up even more. Mm. As you know, Afghan was a fair bit more money. Um, how, how did you go, guys go, get back to the battalion, or to your um, troop? Uh, so we went straight back and our, our leave from memory, I think, got put on hold because we had to help. RTF four with their MRE yep. with their mission rehearsal exercise. RTF three was over there, and it was on their nursery patrol the first couple of days they were there. That unfortunately one of the labs hit a hit a mine yeah. and Trooper Pierce was killed. So that put a bit of a damper on the RTF. It was you know so yeah, especially being a you know two fourteen guy, you know all all deaths are tragic, but this one really hit you know directly. Yeah, um, yeah. So we went straight back out. Back in a Cav regimental life, which only just made me more determined, it was just like, ugh, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This has potential to be a really good job, and it is a good job, but so it's you, not. You, it's not what I want to do. You assisted with mission rehearsal for RTF four, RTF four up yep. in Shoalwater, no, uh, Tin Can Bay. I think it was Tin Can Bay. It was just, it was just to fill a spot, there you go. and I then, was, and I was then after there. about, yeah, I was there. Then so I, that's probably another place where I've probably seen you. Yeah, I would have been in. Yeah, there you go. Drivers hole. Yeah, I'm grumbling. To I was myself. in the back of one of those lads, mate. <laughs> I was in the back of one of them. Yeah. And the bushies. Um, yeah, right, so obviously you're fucking like, fuck this. Yeah, Time like I, to... I was still in the army, so I was still happy, and but it's just in. not what I wanted to do. Yeah. My app was in. I had to reset the psych and the aptitude. I actually studied the maths test because I knew that, that nothing here was going to get um, dodged. And, yep, fine, got the gas score that you need or whatever it is to do SF. And then when I got back, 
um, I started the 13-week training program. Yeah, which was a standard thing back then for everyone. Yep. It's obviously only one of the guys that created it. He's still in, yep. I'm pretty sure. And uh, how, how did you find that 13-week? You followed it to the T? I, I did to the six-week mark. So this was a real turning point in my life. Uh, I always look, you know, there's key points in your life where, okay, this is what a real standout moment. And this 13-week, it was one for me. Um, mm. So they send you out the book. At this stage, it was a couple of years old, um, and I followed it to the letter. And the cab were really good. Um, they were giving me plenty of time off because it's two PT sessions a day, six days a week for, for 13 weeks, basically sums it up. And so the CAV were good when they could. Instead of doing PT with the troop, they would send me off and I could do my first PT during work hours and I'd do the second one after work. Um, and I followed it to the letter to the six-week mark. So it was a fairly – it was a pretty outdated 13-weeker and it still had like leg weights and long, slow runs. Yeah. Um, and at the six-week mark, you do uh, a BFA, a test BFA. It's a basic fitness assessment and – I failed. Like my legs were that jammed up. Um, my legs were that jammed up from the leg weights and these long, slow runs and the pack marches and the sprints that I, I failed miserably. So I was like, hmm, this isn't really working for me. So at the six-week mark, I cut away all the random five-kilometre runs in PT and just substituted them with sprint sessions. Uh, you know, 200 metres, 100%, do that five times and work my way up to 400 metres. Um and then that worked well. My cardio improved. My legs got stronger and, and they, you know, leg weights. Who sits at a leg weight machine? Mm. Like you do squats or deadlifts and, yeah. and sprints. That's what you do. But, you know, there's no getting out of the pack marching and the webbing runs. Every couple of weeks you do either a 2K, you know, sort of webbing run or a 3.2 webbing run. Um, so that's, you know, in your cams with your webbing and, and your dummy rifle. And as for the pack marches, um, I got in a good little routine. So every Monday afternoon I'll do a short and heavy one. Mm. Um, so behind where second 14 is at Inaugura, the, the, what they call heartbreak, it's just this track that yeah, goes straight yep. up Mount Inaugura. It's only yeah, short. I think it's about two and a half Ks or something. Yeah, I've done a few times. Yeah, so yeah. I used to um, load the pack up to about 50 kilos and I had a 14 kilo torsion bar and I'd just go straight. It was the calf destroyer. I used mm. to just go straight up there, two and a half Ks with about, you know, 64 if you add it all up Ks. A kilos, and then that would be Monday afternoon, and then um, Saturday morning. That's when I'd do the light, long distance ones. So Saturday morning, I'd get up and go to Lake Kawong Bar, which is on the north side of Brisbane, and you know I'd do anywhere between sort of like twelve to eighteen or nineteen k's, depending on how the traps or the cars were going. And that was you know with your twenty-seven kilo pack and your seven kilo dummy, yeah. And that would be a fast one. So a lot of that was shuffling, you know, which is like a when you've got a pack on, you can't really jog, so you do what is called a shuffle. Mm. And then every couple of weeks, you'd do the 20 clicker, which was just around the ring road. Yeah. And they were busters because, you know, you're pretty fatigued. And, um, but, yeah, that, that was a real turning point because it, it just conditions your mind to just used to being sore all the time and, you know, to put aside, oh, I'm missing out on this party, you know, no drinking, you know, might have a couple of beers on Sunday but it was a real turning point where you just – Just real dedicated to the cause. Absolutely focused. Don't yeah. care about anything at all. Even when you're doing work at work, you're just like, oh, when am I going to finish non-teching this as yeah, so yeah. I can go, go, to a, train. go to a swim or whatever, you know. So just just to confirm uh, – not, not to confirm, but just to clarify, this is for SASR selection too, mm. not, not out uh, <coughs> to Commando where you eventually end up. So you head out uh, out Perth. <clears throat> yep. 
Um, how's any? Was anyone else flying out with you, or was it just yeah, you? Yeah. So, um, uh, no, I was the only guy from two fourteen, and the only guy that I really recognised from Inogra. But um, so on that RTF two trip, Corey Jones, who was a previous yeah, podcaster, yeah, 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 um, previous guest, he was there as well, and we're like, oh, hey, man, you know. And then so he, I, was, I knew him. Um, but yeah, it, once you get there, it's yeah. just, it's on. The and he was a man mountain there. back then still. Yeah. He'd leaned up, you know, everyone's got to <laughs> lean yeah. up a bit, but, um, yeah, he was still Corey. Yeah. <laughs> still <jacked>. mm. <laughs> <laughs> so you get out, uh, get out West and how was, how was selection? Uh, well, everything like you, you hear, it was just beasting, you know, you, as soon as you get there, it's the individual PT tests, you know, your BFA, mm. You know, your warm-ups that are actually a PT session, you're just getting – it's just intense from the minute you get there. Yeah. Um, the world's coldest swim test, um, you know, at a pool, outdoor pool, it was just – you know, it was just cold. But, I mean, it's a good motivation to get your swim over and done with as fast as possible so you yeah. can uh, <laughs> get out of the pool. <laughs> so you get through – how many days you get through? You get through and then oh, – uh, I don't know. I didn't go very far. I think it was like I mean, yeah. five, four or five days or something. Yeah. It wasn't very fast. So yeah. We, we did the initial um, tests and then we jumped on this bus and drove out to one of the training areas and um, and then we all, it was quite early morning by this stage and we go into this hangar, everyone knows it's coming, so we all had to line up and nude up and standing there naked. Um, it's freezing, absolutely freezing after doing this freezing pool test and uh, there was somebody said, <laughs> I think it was Corey, I don't know who, but it's dead silent, everyone's super nervous. And one of the candidates said, okay, I'll say it. Damn, it's cold in here, like due to the <laughs> yeah. size of our, you know, shriveled uh, penises. And I remember that that was another one of those, you know, moments I'm going to laugh about that later. I'm not right now. But uh, I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> I don't know if it was Corey or not, but it came from his, where he was standing. It probably was. And then, yeah, so it was during the first Navex. Um, like I knew how to nav. I'd been going out to the pine forests north of Brisbane where it's just dead flat and pine forests and just doing compass and bearing. You know, I passed my recon course. I'd done plenty of nav. I knew how to nav. And anyway, during the first Navex, I was just trying to find this one checkpoint and I couldn't find it. And there was about five, it was a heap of us. There was about four or five of us all walking around trying to find this mm. checkpoint. And, you know, I was trying to get on the, on the radio, you know, to, to confirm my grid. Maybe I'd written down wrong. Um, and you just couldn't get on. There was just a hundred, still a hundred guys, all, all, you know, just getting stepped on on the radio, talking over, interrupted, bad comms. And, um, and yeah, and that's when I realised it was just like a switch um, because before I went on selection, I, my wife, I was married at the time, um, found out that I was giving birth to our first yeah, child yeah. Uh, and it was due sort of at the end of selection. And um, so when everything was going great, I was like, I tried to put that aside. Mm. Um, not going to worry about, you know, family or whatever. But once it just threw my mojo and I was yeah. just like, you know what, if I, even if I pass this course, I'm going to be away on the rear. I'm not going to see this kid like 12 months and then I just, just didn't care anymore yeah. and just gave up. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, that's, that, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things. Though, isn't it? That's all yeah, it I was just like, you know what? No, I know how to nav. It's just I'm having a shit day. I Right now, I would rather be home and see my son. You know, everyone was super tired. Mm. And that's why they have selection. There. How old are you at this stage? Um, I would have been 29. Yeah. So you, maybe. you're getting on. Yeah, well, it seemed to be the average sort of age. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just pulled the pin. Yep. And then- Went back to the cav. Yeah, so you went back to back to Brizzy, but it didn't stop there. No, you two commando. Yes. Um, so, so what do you do? You just put in your app again, and 
it were, yeah. was Cav supportive again? Or yep, were they, they were. Uh, so I told them I want to try out next year, and um, and they were like, "Yep, that's great." However, you're going to go down to Puckapunyal and do your crew commander course, which is three months of horrendousness down <laughs> at Puckapunyal. Um, and it was leading up to selection, so there wouldn't have been no there would be no time to train. And I was just like, "Oh, you know, there's no point me doing this, even if I." Don't get through this time. I'm, I'm going back to Grants. So I'm doing something. Um, so I eight nine was being re raised at this stage next mm. door. So um, I went over there and there was some guys that I sort of knew from one hour or whatever. And then I just put in my core transfer back to infantry. And I think and then six weeks later I was over at eight nine hour. I only had like a platoon or something at this stage. Yeah, right. And then I was got promoted to Lance Jack and then, and they were like, yep, we understand you want to go SF, but just help with these new guys. And yeah. And, um, so that actually worked out better because I had to do when now, so we had a brand new platoon of IATs come through from eight, you know, Singo. Mm. And, um, so I had to do my first PT. I started the 13 weeker again. Um, I did my first PT session before work, and then I'd do PT with the platoon at seven thirty. You know, normal battalion life, and then you know, help or run the training or whatever was going on for the day. And then whenever I knock off, that's when I'd do my second one. And those longer days actually prepared me better. Yeah, um, because yeah, it, it was just another level of being pulled out of your comfort zone and pressure. And and so when I put in my application again, because uh, I voluntarily withdrew from SASR. I had to write a, some sort of document explaining mm. why they should let me apply again. It was like a minute or a demi-official or some sort of, I was just like, you know, what? I don't, I don't, I, I didn't have any particular preference for either unit. I just wanted to go yeah, SF, SF yeah. Uh, I liked, you know, from my limited knowledge, they were all good. Yeah. So I was just like, you know what, I'm not sitting in front of a fucking computer. I'll just go to put in an application for four-hour command. I was at the time, was in just about to transition. And, and I thought, you know, East Coast suits you better, you know. Um, and so, yeah, put it in for, for our uh, slash two commando. Yeah. <coughs> so you you do your <coughs> – <coughs> oh, fucking dry, <coughs> dry throat. Um, so you, you do uh, commando selection. Yep. And you pass and then obviously get into your reinforcement cycle. This is where it change, obviously changes for you because you've gone from infantry to cav, back to infantry for a little bit. And then now into the SF side of things. How did you find uh, commando selection, and then moving on to the reinforcement cycle? Uh, so commando selections changed. Like two commandos only a new unit, so mm. you know it's it's only been around like since '98, pretty much. Um, and most of those times have been on ops, so it's a yeah, unit that's been exactly. born out of ops. And the requirements and what was believed to be the requirements, and how we're going to get the what we're after, you know, focus on teamwork, all this sort of stuff would constantly change. And at the time I did what was called the commando CTSC commando training selection course. So uh, I went for about seven weeks and on paper, there's a, there's, it's broken up into packets, but to us, it was just from, from a, you know, a user end, it was just seven weeks of just absolute getting smashed. Um, it was just long and it just went on and on and on. And you started um, with 103 candidates. Yeah, from memory, there was 103. And then at the end, when we all got a berets, it was either 11 or 13. And then about four or five came a couple of months later because I had to redo a certain course. Um, and it was just, it was just epic. Um, it just went on and on and on forever. <laughs> you know, it, was, it followed the usual template. You know, there was the individual phase of all your fitness tests, then a the nav phase. 
And, you know, of course, it rained during the nav phase. Yeah, of know, course, yeah. Everyone's feet, because, you know, we're wearing those suede hot weather boots. Yeah. You had yeah, to wear yeah, them. Yeah. Everyone's feet were just – I remember just putting, you know, strapping tape on top of strapping tape on top of – you know, it was just a mess. And then weapons and tactics, and these were lessons, and then at night time – you just get smashed for PT and mm. just sleep debt. And, you know, this you're just getting belted for like 19 hours a day for like seven weeks and it was just – Yeah, right. It just went on and on. Fucking hell. Um, so, so you pass uh, the selection and start your reinforcement cycle. Yep. Now this is where you, obviously you begin your special forces training, which we all know it's, uh, you know, next level up from infantry, but you obviously had that background of the infantry which I'm sure would have helped in, you know, in some way, definitely did. How did, how did you find the reinforcement cycle? Because that's about 18 months-ish, is uh, it? Was it shorter? Oh, it was months? different back then. It, it went it's about – chop, chopped and changed, isn't it? Yeah, we had to catch up on a lot of courses once we got into the unit. Like, um, yeah, there was a lot of, like, the PSD and the Amphib and all yeah. like, the full-on Amphib. We all got split into groups because they were trying to get guys the basic so that they could get overseas, basically. Yeah. And this is a busy time for two commando as well. Oh, They're yeah. fucking in and out, SOTG. Yeah, um, during during DMARC, um, during DMARC, which is, like, the final phase, that's when it transitioned over to two commando. Mm. And uh, the, the DMARC side of it um, – I'm not going to go too much about into the process of selection because it's mm. got to be a bit of a surprise, but at the end there's a period where there's no sleep and, and no eat. Of course. No eating. Yeah. And uh, it's during that time where you kind of learn what your weaknesses are. You know, yeah. like some people are sleep, some people it's food, you know, and with me it was food. Um, and uh, <laughs> so um, there was one period there that always stands out. Um during the DMARC phase, there's a high-tempo activity, which is normally like, you know, we were carrying these stretches made out of railway line um, through the bush for, like, hours, and, and no one had slept for a couple of days, and it was, like, really weird. Like, it was like trying to move drunk people mm. around. Like, whole teams would just collapse. You know, people <laughs> would get lost. Messages that didn't make sense would get passed up the line. It was just crazy. And then there would be, like, a low-intensity activity, which is just, like, moving sandbags around or or doing a foot patrol around some weird village where weird things are going on or whatever. It was during this stage where I realised that food's my weakness. So yeah. there was a period in the middle of DMARC where they locked us all in this wet room and they said, go to sleep for half an hour. And I just laid – I couldn't sleep. I was too hungry. I just lay there, like, st- thinking about food. But anyway, we were doing this uh, low-intensity activity and it was around this building called um, Low Level Ops. And that was, like, the command and control centre for selection. That's where the, the DS, the directing staff <laughs> – that's where they worked out of. And it had, you know, the big antenna, you know, it was the safety nets. And when we were out doing stuff, it always had to be a SIG there with a medic in case someone busted themselves or whatever. And, you know, they were living a normal, relatively normal life. So they had bins out the front, water jerrys, and they were getting hot boxes brought out from Singo mm. with meals. So hot box is like an aluminium tray that they put food in, put a lid on it, and it gets sent out to soldiers in the field. And um, the SIGs the man in this radio we're getting hot boxes, you know, so we could smell food occasionally. It was just driving us mad. And at one point, it was the middle of the night at some time, we had to ferry sandbags from the front of uh, low-level ops round to the back. And as we're walking around, uh, there's a, these bins are out front. <laughs> and, and laying down in the dirt next to uh, one of the bins, I see this thing, um, <clears throat> you know, haven't slept for days, you know, everyone's hallucinating, whatever. And I and I come to the conclusion that, hey, that looks like a potato that's fallen out of some – because yeah. no, one eat, no one eats the potatoes out of a hot box. You yeah. Know, they get piffed along with the burnt rice. You know, it looks like a hot box that someone's got, you know, going to put their hot box in the drop, bin and potatoes fall out. It's covered with dirt, covered with sand, you know, bin juice. It's laying there. 
And I come up with, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I come up with this plan that, so I'm going to walk around the back with everyone else, sandbag, drop them. As I come past, I'm going to sort of reach down to my map pocket, undone on my pants. I'm going to reach down and grab this filthy potato and shove it in my pocket. And then when I get a chance later, I'm going to like eat it. All I could think about was this goddamn potato. And anyway, snatch it, it's in my pocket. Do a couple more runs, pluck up the courage. You know, then no DS watching. Around the back, there's this bit of shadow because it's the middle of the night. Anyway, I pull this potato out and I snap it in half, you know, because I'm going to take a big bite out of the middle without getting any of this dirt in my mouth, which failed miserably. And I take this big bite into what I think is this potato and it was a bar of soap. So, (laughs) you know, hand basin, people (laughs) to wash their hands before they, um, you know, and this bar of soap's going on the ground and and old mate Sig's just going, I'm not picking that up. That's gross. So it wasn't a potato, it was a bar of soap. And I as soon as I took a bite, I knew immediately what it was, you know, Good old 1980s parenting, like it just took me back to when I was a kid when like I'd back chatted or said a swear word and I got my mouth washed out with soap and I just straight away, I was just like, oh. And then I immediately remembered that Jace Brown told me when he was on selection, uh, he got that hungry that he he convinced himself that his chapstick, uh, his chapstick was made out of animal fat and not petroleum jelly. So he ate his chapstick and he said to me, no, whatever you do, no matter how hungry you get, don't eat your chapstick because <laughs> you'll get the worst gut aches. So I didn't, I didn't eat a chapstick, but, um, I did eat a filthy bar of soap out of a bin. <laughs> <laughs> That's an absolute cracking fucking story. And then Jason Brown eating a chapstick. <laughs> Mate, so you finish your reinforcement cycle, then you are posted to the famous Delta Company to come on the Punishers with uh, with the big man, Corey J. Yeah, so um, Delta Company was slotted to do the next rotation. So um, we went straight into Delta Company at the end of 2009. Uh, it was Corey and another – Awesome dude, uh, AB, who was on RTF2 with us, um, mm. him as well. And, yeah, I got put in uh, Murray Turner's team. So he yeah, was the right, lead planner yep. uh, for our platoon. So each platoon's got their own lead planner, like their most senior team commander. And I got put into Muzz's team, or Murray Turner. Um, and I was stoked. Like, I was very lucky because, you know, the lead planner's always going to put his team in the best spot, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, if we're doing cordon, you know, they're going to go where the action is, not going to go around yeah. the back and walk through the sewer you know, and we'll send team three to do that. Yeah. You know, I don't and, know. and just, just for the listeners, if you want to listen to Murray Turner's episode, head back to episode 56 and uh, jump on, have a listen. And I'm sure all these stories and uh, Corey as well, this will all tie in with, uh, with today's podcast. But uh, yeah, mate. Yeah. Uh, so I filled the, uh, the medic position. So again, that uh, combat first aid qual that I brought over from recon platoon back in one hour days. Um, I filled the medic position for that, um, for that, for that tour yeah, in that team. Yep, yep. And we did some really good um, lead-up training. It was by far the best um, medical training. We went down to um, – oh, what's that place? I can't remember. Where the medics do their training. Bandiana? Is that Bandiana? Yeah, um, the place on the border. Yeah, uh, Aubrey Wodonga. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we went to the morgue and looked at all that stuff, and we did this the most realistic – I learnt more on how to triage and treat, um, you know, battlefield injuries – than I'd done on any of my previous CFA yeah, like right. recertifications. So, yeah, I filled that position uh, for that trip, 2010 trip. Yeah, right. Uh, so that that was your first trip uh, as two commander. Yep. And obviously that trip was quite a kinetic trip. Uh, it was. So, 
leading up to that, when we did the, the mission rehearsal exercise before we deployed, uh, the SASR element and the Special, Om- Special Operations Engineer Regiment, we all married up down at the location where we used to do these um, MREs. And uh, Jason Brown was part of the um, as part of the SASR mm. contingent to come on that trip, so that was good. You know, old Brownie, we're about to deploy again. You know, after how many yeah, seven yeah. years or whatever, we're about to deploy again. And, and Andy White was there as well. And I'd met Andy previously on the um, SASR selection. We were both looking for this goddamn checkpoint, <laughs> but he actually found it. Uh, and so, yeah, it was good to see. And Andy and Brownie were in the same team, obviously. Yeah, and uh, so it was good. Everyone was morale was high. We're all heading overseas again. As SF operators too. Yeah, and so Murray was the lead planner and Troy Knight, who you've also had on, he was yeah. the JTAC. Um, yeah. Yeah, so what a, what a trip. And, and again, for the listeners, jump on those other ones. You'll definitely hear a lot of those stories of the contacts on that uh, rotation. But we'll move on to the next one. Uh, SOTG, um, was that? 13. 13, sorry. Yep. So this is second tour. You, you're, you're, <clears throat> you're a well-established uh, soldier at this stage. In the regular army, CAV, and now special forces. So you, you're, you know, essentially fucking, you've just got a plethora of knowledge of being a soldier. So how did you find that second tour? Uh, it was great. Uh, it was everything that I'd like hoped it was. Yeah. And because I'm mean, still, still a new guy. Like half the time you don't know what's going on. Mm. You just, hey, go here, do that. Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> but, you know, so I wasn't involved in any of the planning or anything like that. Um but just being part of Murray's team because he loved chasing people down and not afraid to just go stomping up a, a mountain if not if it was quiet go you know go looking for looking for trouble it was it was great and you had to be fit to be in Muzz's team that's all I'm going to say yeah right <laughs> yeah he's 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 a big big boy isn't he yeah um hang on sorry mate let me just just gonna quickly just Google something. You don't need a drink or anything, do you? Yeah. Okay. So I'm just trying to get a time on of... Uh, Brownie's death. Yeah, Third, that and... of October. Yeah, and... Um, just backing up, mate, obviously, just before this deployment, uh, A Company had their helo crash as well, which took the lives of uh, Scott Palmer, Timothy Applin, and uh, Benjamin Chuck. So how, how was the morale throughout the, the commandos at that stage? Obviously, it's fucking never good losing someone. No. So, um, again, Oz, we're all the new guys. You know, we weren't really in on the inner circles of – we didn't know many people mm. around the regiment, so – you know, to us it was terrible, but we, you know, I didn't know any of the guys. Um, and but and by the time we ripped in, I think um, our like um, lead elements had helped in some of that. Some of our key individuals in in Delta Company had you know had assisted in while this was happening, but it didn't really. Um, from my perspective, it was just you know a tragedy, and again, just brought home the uh, the dangers of helicopters. Yeah, you know, like, and obviously, you guys did a lot of. A lot of work in helicopters. Yeah, we did. Uh, and, you know, as the trip went on, uh, there were just hard landings. You know, I remember a couple there, we, they were trying to insert our team into this valley and we were striking the trees. The blades were hitting the trees and branches were falling down. And, you know, there were hard landings. There was one where we were all seated 
And when we landed, the seating's like designed to collapse once it hits a certain bit of force so that your spine doesn't, all the seats collapse. And Muzz was like stuck in there. I remember like pulling him out, yeah, out right. of the seat. So, you know, you're just, you're in someone else's hands. Once you get on that helo, mm. you know, there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. You just get a hope. Yeah. So during that SOTG 13 trip, um, again, Troy and Muzz have spoken about this one. This is one where I think Troy almost got left behind. Oh, yeah, that was the first hit out was in, it? Yeah. in the combat. So that was that was crazy. Um, I I just thought every single SF trip, every mission was just going to be, you know, it was just going to be crazy. But yeah. you know, obviously you have quiet ones as well. But that first one out to combat, that was that was a big job. And we ended up getting stuck out there longer than we were meant to because the dust clouds came yeah. in and went AME red, you know. And um, but yeah, and we just got told the helos are coming, they're not coming, they are coming, and then I remember we all we got told the helos are coming now and we all ran down out of the hills to get on these birds and then we got told no they're not coming so we all turn around and run back and then all of a sudden up the floor of this um it was like his right you know up the floor of this valley this Sage 47 chook just comes along at ground level like almost doing burnouts because he's blowing up all this dust. Yeah. It's like, yeah. So we all turn around and run back on. It was just chaos. There was no organization. <laughs> it was just a, a sprint. And we all get on and then um Something happened and we all had to run back off and grab something and then we had to run back on again and then as we took off, we had to land again and then Nighty got knocked out by the rotor wash and he comes running on and, um, yeah, it was crazy. And then when we got back, you know, the heel, the birds were all full of holes and um, and when we got back, I remember just said to one of the other guys in our team, uh, N, I said, hey, are they, are they all like this? Like, and he was like, no, nah, not normally. That was, uh, that was pretty <laughs> – That was just a shit That was fight. pretty wild, yeah. <laughs> and then <sighs> – I guess this is where it gets a little bit fucked up, you know, for yourself. Mm. Um, Browning. Yeah. Obviously Andy White, you know, again, going back uh, previous episode, we had Andy White on and he was with Jason on this day, on this fateful day. And um, for the listeners, definitely jump on. You can definitely hear the whole story about Jason Brown and even the person who who he was um, you know, prior to his death. So, but mate, let's, let's touch on it. Yeah. So August, 2010, um, our, our element was preparing for an upcoming mission as Shirley Cot. Um, and we were due to leave, you know, at usual time, you know, around midnight or something like that. And the mission prep phase is always really busy. You know, you're prepping maps, you're getting orders, you're doing any specialist stores or whatever you need to do, charge construction leading up to it. And, um, and so when we were in Afghanistan, we had good contact home, but, you know, we could ring home on the on the secure telephone lines mm. and we had email access, but no one from home could ring us. So I'd been sent an email from home um, and I hadn't checked it because we were busy. So um, Br- Brownie had been sent an email saying, hey, if you see Mick, tell him to ring home. It's very important. And so I remember I was in the hallway of the Sock C, which is like the headquarters building, doing something with an armful of maps or something. And I passed Brad and he's like, oi, because he was getting ready to go out as well and it was into the similar area, um, his, his call sign. And uh, he's like, oi, you have to ring home before this job. Make sure you ring home. I'm like, oh, yeah, rightio. Well, anyway, I have a good one. He did his usual, you know, because he had a real cheerful smirk on his face all the time. He's like, yeah, of course. And then, you know, I ended up, once the battle prep was done, I rung home and then it turned out uh, that I I was expecting my second child. Uh and that's the first I'd heard about it. Um, so, you know, obviously my wife at the time was trying to reach out to me. I wasn't 
checking my email. So she sent an email to Brownie, like, we tell that guy. So, you know, yeah, and that was the last time I sort of spoke to him before this mission. So we inserted. Um, I can't really remember much about that mission. Oh, it was really hot and really still. Um, and I was coming – We'd, we'd done whatever we'd gone there to do and uh, we were waiting for the next extraction for the extraction period and I'd come down from manning the picket position up on the top of this feature and, and, and as I'd, we'd heard the day before that the SAS element had taken a pry one casualty which is like a serious um, mm. you know life threatening uh, for anyone that doesn't know um, injury uh, so, and it We'd heard that the day before, and as I was walking past, it was—I remember—it was just daybreak coming up. We were in this creek, you know, but being up most of the night, you didn't really sleep on these forty-hour missions. You didn't take a pack or anything; you just lay on the ground. You couldn't sleep anyway because you, you know, drinking Red Bulls and those twelve-hour mm, twelve-hour energy gel <laughs> yeah. things, you yeah, know, burn yeah. holes in your stomach. Yeah, oh, yeah everyone's living <laughs> off them. So I remember just coming down from the um, picket position, and as I walked past the boss, who was sitting there with a the cig, I heard him say to one of the guys, oh, the, that pry, that pry one's now KIA. It was a, it was Jason Brown. And I was just like, what? And I was just like, you know, mm. absolutely, you know, mm. like punching the guts. So then anyway, we got extracted. It was still early morning when we got back. Um, and I was walking over, I was walking past the mess, you know, breakfast was still being, mm. was still going on. So, it must have been early morning when we got back and Andy White called me over and he's like, oi. And, and I'm like, hey, man, what's – and so he goes, come on. And we went and grabbed a table outside and we sat down and he told me what happened. Mm. Like, neither of us had slept for a couple of days, you know, big adrenaline dump. It was a really dry-mouthed conversation, mm. you know, and, and he explained to me what happened and and how everything – did everything they could, you know. Like I really I really appreciate mm. Andy doing yeah, that because there was a lot of – a lot of bullshit going on at yeah. the time between the two yeah, um, FEs, and Brandy was never part of it. Always, you know, so you know, we went sort of beyond that. But it was I'll always, you know, be grateful to Andy for mm. sitting me down and telling me what happened. And then, um, and anyway, so he told me what happened. You know, like man, holy shit! And then our our platoon got warned out. So the mission that we just done. It more targets had pinged in that area. So we got a warning order that we we're going out again that night next period of darkness. So battle prep started all over again. And uh, Muzz knew that, you know, and, and the other guy on my team, and they all knew that, oh, yeah, you know, Mick knew these guys pretty well. So they said, hey, you're not coming on this one. Yeah. I didn't fight it. Um, and I was just like, yeah, okay. But I, I couldn't sit still because, you know, I hadn't slept for a couple of days. You're just pinging off your head. And I remember just helping with the battle prep, anything to avoid being still. And, um, you know, helping with the water, radios, doing all that sort of stuff. And then it wasn't until, um, you know, later that night, probably about 1900 or so, when everything was done and the forced rest period mm. came in and everyone was inserting that night, uh, you know, that's when it finally, everything just stopped. And I went and had a shower. And when I came back from the shower, there was this bottle of uh, scotch and a six pack of beers uh, on my bed. And uh, we're all in big accommodation. We went mm. on little mm. curtains. And everyone was in bed by this stage, and I just, I just sat down and put my earphones on and listened to some music and just fucking necked that piss mm. up as no tomorrow. And it wasn't then until I just kind of all went to poop. Yeah. And then I just passed out and then woke up the next day in a pile of beer cans in my uh, bed, and everyone was gone. The lines were empty. And I went over to the 
phones and by this stage the phones were back on so that mm. means you know the next of kin must have been notified and I rang home and um rang a few old recon mates and then um yeah and then uh we had his ramp ceremony mm. um so you know they did the whole coffin march out to the back of the the bird and then we all stood to attention and he flew away and they mm. took him home and, and buried him yeah <coughs> Um, and, and and then we had a little service for him, mm. and then one of his troop mates, like this sums up Randy pretty good, you know. Um, one of his one of his troop mates was like, they were all sitting around. This is what he said at the service. He goes, they're all sitting around, you know, joking about what they were going to do when they got out. And someone asked Brandy, and he said, like, oh, I'm never getting out. Like, and that was just him. Mm. I can imagine him as a crusty old woe living yeah, in the yeah, lines, yeah. trying to go Still, out on the piss yeah. with the Rios, and they're like, <laughs> go away, old man. Like, I could I could picture, yeah. Brandy doing that. Um, but, yeah, and then we had an awesome wake over in the SASR lines. You know, everyone forgot about all the rubbish. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, and it was at this stage where I was starting to, you know, Josh had gone and now Jason had gone. You know, only, we were, weren't really – we were taking casualties, but they were, it was just like, man, I'm start, this is there's a good chance that, um, you know, might not – make it out of all this. Mm. But I remember once the boys came back from that mission, a heap of us were going to go down to um, Gracelands to do some stuff with the Canadian SOF. Yeah. And I was back in with that. And I remember just standing there as we were getting orders. And I remember just standing there amongst all the boys. I remember just looking around going amongst all these squared away operators, awesome dudes, like team commanders that just were all over it. And I remember just thinking like, I don't, I don't care. What happens, I just wouldn't miss this for anything. And this yeah. is the absolute best place to be. I don't want to be anywhere else but here. Yeah. Um, it was just a really I – can't, I can't put words to how no. I was feeling. Um, no, definitely, mate. And fuck, you know, how that incident didn't turn into more Australian casualties with fucking Andy and, you know, the troop commander with that. Yeah. Fuck, like the story is just – again, if you want to listen to it, head over to Andy's uh, podcast because you'll get the full story on that one. It's just – fuck, terrible times. Mm. Um, but that is the casualties of war, mm. as we all know. Mate, so you you guys obviously copped a couple of uh, bushy strikes as well, IED strikes. Yeah, so November. You know, we did heaps more missions, lots of kinetic stuff. Lot of kinetic, but, yeah. But then um, November we went out on an extended um, vehicle mission down into Shualikot. Yeah, which you guys obviously, you know, speaking to a couple of you two commander guys in SASR, you, try to, you eventually steered away from the vehicle mm. Movements just because of the ID threat did pick up over the next fucking forever mm. and moved into the helo, but now you're back into a, a bushy. Yeah, so it was a fairly long one. I th- it was about maybe two or three weeks, I think. And uh, we, we'd gone way down south into Shwali Cotton. We're in an area where Alpha Company in the previous rotation had lost a bushy from an ID. And then we, we were, you know, we're doing all our vulnerable point crossings properly, you know, so it was super slow. Every time we'd get to a choke point that we couldn't avoid, you know, there were drills would follow, someone would get out, do their stuff, dog would get out, and then we'd creep through and then move on to the next choke point. But, um, yeah, we did our best to drive cross country, but sometimes it was just the train was too canalizing. There's nothing mm. you could do about it. <clears throat> so we ended up, we came to this one spot was this dry riverbed, and, um, you know, the special operations engineer guys went across, did their thing, and the dog went across, did their thing, and the sniper vehicle was the load lead vehicle. It went across, and Mars was actually out on foot 
working with the um, the solar guys, and the sniper vehicle went across and over took up an overwatch position on the other side, as you do. And then our vehicle's turn was to drive through this defile. And um, N was in the crew commander position in the turret of the bushy. Um, I was standing in the rear, right right rear gun facing the rear. Um, another guy, D, was sitting in the seat, the correct seating position in the back with his seat belt on. Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> and then uh, the two I see was in the, sitting in the front, and then we had the driver, McLovin. So uh, <laughs> we had this driver from 5RR, like just a regular army guy, uh, and he looked like McLovin out of some movie. I can't remember what it's called, but we all called him McLovin, and he used to cop. <laughs> Super bad. Yeah, he used to cop so much shit. But, um, <laughs> McLovin. So, yeah, and our Bushmaster was called ASODs Compliant. So um, <laughs> ASODs is like the army dress manual. Yeah. And it, originally our Bushmaster was called Jupiter's Cock because we were all watching um, that TV show yeah. Spartacus yeah. at the time. And um, that was like what they would say whenever there was something exciting would yeah. happen. So we called it that. And we got told we had to change it. So we spray-painted Jupiter's Cock out and wrote ASODs Compliant. So anyway, ASODs Compliant goes into this creek bank and just old cav drill where whenever you drive through a defile or yeah. a vulnerable point where your chance of hitting a minor and IED is high, you always duck down behind the armor line. And unlike the Aslavs, in these Bushmasters, the comms always had a high-pitched whine. I think yeah, it had yeah, something to did, do yeah. with our protective yeah. measures. So we never used to wear the hearing protection. It was always just hanging there. Mm. We would use the squawk box so we could hear comms. And so no hearing protection. And as we went down into this defile, I just – just happened to duck down behind the armor line and then the front right wheel hit up what they estimate to be 20 kilos of homemade explosives. Um, and boom, yeah, it didn't rupture the hull. Um, it threw the wheel, which weighs, you know, 150 kilos or whatever, threw it about 20 or so meters. And the vehicles came to a complete stop and it was just a complete whiteout. Like the dust that's all inside the vehicles from just driving around, it just became... You couldn't see anything, you know. So one minute we're just driving, all of a sudden, just boom! Like I've been near lots of charges and mm. explosives, but this mm. was, this just went straight through you. Like, right it felt like your it, teeth. Yeah. Well, you could feel it in your like your mm. chest afterwards. And then it came to a complete stop. Couldn't see anything. Um, everyone's like ah, coughing and groaning and swearing, and like I was the combat, I was the medic for the team, so I had to like, you know, every you know your headache, you know your neck, and you had a lot of whiplash, you know, oh. Friggin' hell, your neck and ears and all that sort of stuff. And then so I, I did a quick, you know, I had to make sure the status of everybody, make sure they're all right. Uh, so D, who was sitting in the approved seating with his seatbelt on, uh, he had like suspected back problems. Yeah, right. And McLovin, the driver, right leg was giving him trouble. Um, uh, didn't penetrate the hole, but, you know, just the, I guess it was just coming to a complete stance. Of course, yeah. Um, so as soon as we kind of realised we didn't have any pry ones or pry twos, really, everyone was kind of stable. It, it just started immediately. Everyone just started giving McLovin shit, saying he was blubbering and like <laughs> he wasn't groaning any more than anyone else. Yeah. But you know, poor fella. So if you're hearing McLovin, you know, <laughs> love you, mate. mate. Love you. <laughs> uh, and so you know, vehicle came will stop. Checked everybody over. I remember Mars just. Look, just like, oh, everyone's dead. My team's dead. And then, uh, you know, Soa did their stuff, cleared around our vehicle. You know, I shouted a um, sit rep to the mm. actual platoon medic, and they probed forward, and then they, you know, prepped McLovin and D for extraction by Hilo, and they just made it in, actually, I think, from memory, because I think the, it went AME red just after they got 
they after they left. Oh yeah, right. And then and then like the inevitable work party began uh, of just ferrying controlled stores out of the wrecked vehicle, distributing it amongst the others, mm. and then and then we we destroyed it in place, and then yeah. um, we all got you know spread out amongst the other vehicles, and then so we we kept moving on, and then because of the terrain, um, we ended up. That the nearest village, you kind of couldn't avoid it, the nearest village to where this IED was um, set up. So we camped out in the dashed that night, and the next day we went down, we started moving the vehicles, all started moving towards this village to do like a clearance of this village because that's what we were out there to do. Um, and as we're moving up, we're just about to set up into a VDO, which is like a vehicle harbour, yep. and then we got upped up with MG fire from um, vicinity near the village. So we like halted and we we're about to dismount and go into a clearance and the firing stopped. And then a, a delegation, like a lot of the times these Afghan villages, like when you're approaching them, like a, a bunch of elders will come out and they'll want to have a shura, which is like a meeting. You know, they're like Turgiman, which is like your interpreter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, right. So we put the clearance of the village on hold and we call the, these, we have a meet, sit down meeting with these elders and they had this guy with them late teens and he was like a full on uh like I don't know how to say this, but he was like retarded. Like full yeah, yeah. full spastic, like dribbling and giggling and laughing. And they're like, you know, and they tried to tell us basically that that incredibly complex IED that our devices failed to detect <laughs> was planted by this <coughs> village um, you know, spastic. And the guy who shot at us with the machine gun was also this guy. So, no you know, do whatever, you yeah. know, take, take it all out on him. And we're like, oh, yeah, cool story. And then as this is happening, uh, the electronics guys going, hey, we're getting reported on right now. Enemy chatters coming from the other side of the village and they're, they're gloating about how, that you know, we blew up their tank and, you know, and now they're here, you know, we're going to get them again. And we're like, oh, rightio. So we ignored the uh, the village idiot and then – come up with this plan where the the, t- the, patro- the platoon's going to patrol non-aggressively down into the village and then our team, Murray's team, is going to drop off the back, circle around the other side of the village and try and catch these mm. guys um, that are reporting on us. So all goes according to plan. The re- you know, the rest of the platoon, I don't know what they did from memory, but I'm guessing they just went into the middle of the village. We circle around and we're walking up this dry re-entrant on the edge of the village, slowly heading uphill and – we're getting, call, we're getting updates on the radio saying, hey, they're right. They're right there. Uh, you should be on top of them. And no sooner had they said that, and we happened to look up to our right, and about 50, oh, 40 metres to our on our right-hand side, oh, shit, it was like close. a bit, bit of a crest. Yep. You could see two armed men walking the opposite direction. Two so like, like two single files yep. crossing each other, and they didn't see us. And uh, – you know, they were armed, had their radios, all this stuff. They were talking into their radios. And, um, oh, sorry, go back a bit. Um, when D got extracted on the on the AME bird, one of the mortar team guys took his gun and slotted in on our in a, on our team. Yeah, yeah. Um, what was he carrying? Uh, Mark 48. Mark 48, yeah. Which is your 762 one. Yeah. Minimum. So, you know, we had this guy from the mortar team as our gunner. Uh, I was in the middle of the stack just because of the way we, we were. And then I remember Muzz turned around and gave us the um, the immediate ambush field signal. Yeah. So when you're a young infantryman, you know you've got all these field signals. Yeah. Like single file. You know. You know. Um, you know. You know, harbour up, turn around. But 
the dream one is like immediate ambush. No, you always think, you know, and you use that in a scenario where like, you know, you're on the edge of a road and there's some enemy like marching down the road and you can quickly do an immediate ambush, you know, and it's the one that you always think, oh, that would just be the best, but I don't think I'll ever see it. Anyway, he did it, and I was just like, oh, I remember I was thinking to myself, well, there you go. Uh, <laughs> it, it's it, real. <laughs> it just happened. So we did a right turn and weapons up, and now we're immediately in extended line, and we just mm. started walking up the hill towards these guys. They hadn't seen us. And then when we were still probably 30 metres away or something, they turned and looked at us and just crapped themselves, and the radios went up in the air, and they disappeared off the far side of the crest, and so then we sprinted to the top, and, and then – we looked down and by this stage, you know, they cracked off a couple of shots and then we started trying to hit, mm. you know, a couple of sh- moving shots. They split in two. One guy went off down to the right and the other guy went off to the left towards his pile of rocks. He got clipped by somebody and he went down into the rocks and the team split in half. The gunner and the 2IC went down on the guy on the right and then the rest of us went after this guy. And then as we closed in on him, on where he was and, you know, in this rocks, he like, he like sat up when I got to about 15 metres away from me, sat up like with his gat and just bang, bang. It was just two shots to the face and then he just went down and then we did the battlefield clearance, you know, catalogued weapons, you know, radios and we went back and found the radios. I ended up pacing it out. It was exactly 100 metres from the top. We were engaging them to the bottom um, and then we did the battlefield clearance and then the other component of the team came back and, and the guy that replaced um, D was like, you know, every platoon's got like that loud mouth and mm. Mr. Inappropriate and just, you know, well, that was this guy, like harmless, but, and he just goes, ah, this is the most action D's guns had on this trip so far. <laughs> now, it wasn't true, but it was pretty funny. And then, so, uh, yeah, and then we just collapsed back and then just continued on with this yeah, right. driver yeah. in the dash. And then, couple of days later as we were driving back we were in another obviously we were spread out amongst all the bushmasters um and we were driving back to um tk on the on the main highway i think it's kandahar to the south mm, of yeah it's the yep. main highway it doesn't get yeah. id'd or anything we're driving down this road doing doing about 50 and then pitch you know in the dark and whatever reason the bushmaster went off the road and just came to a complete halt from 50 k's to zero <laughs> crash and i was in that back right hatch again oh, no. and just got piffed up out of the um, rear hatch onto the roof, like smashing into every chunk. Tanner and everything, yeah. And then we got back and, uh, you know, as we'd been blowing up, the ears were still ringing, been in a vehicle crash, you know, necks killing me, knees. I was just like, man, I'm going to do any of these. And then anyway, the CEO of SOTG, we were talking to him about, you know, the, the value of these long vehicle patrols through known IED areas. And, uh, and we're like, you know, is the payoff really worth it? And I know he just worded it badly, but it was humorous. He goes, well, it doesn't matter. Like we've got another 11 Bushmasters in strategic reserve. <laughs> so I'm like, so does that mean yeah, we can right. have another yeah. 11 uh, vehicle strikes? <laughs> I don't know if my, you know, my ears can handle it. Yeah. You know, it was just, it didn't matter. We've got another 11. Like, <laughs> but yeah, anyway. <laughs> um, all right. So moving on to, where are we? Oh, time, time since. Yeah, so how how long are these deployments? Uh, just under Three, just four, under the six months. Six months. Oh, or so you don't have to do the uh, the rockle thing. Oh, so they can yeah. fucking skimp on. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, right. Well, fuck. Uh, there's some crazy rockle stories out there. That's probably why. Mm, yeah, 
It's not worth the hassle, link. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So in uh, 2011, 4th yep. of July, uh, Todd's killed. Yeah, so... um. In 2011, the DA started, like, finally the Afghan government submitted and realised, you know, this has been going, this war against the Taliban has been going on for too long now. We might actually have to start targeting their, where their money comes from. Because up to then, we couldn't sort of target the narcotics, the heroin production. 2011, they finally decided that you can. So the DA partnered with Two Commando, and Two Commando started going into traditionally um, Taliban-held areas, um, such as Helmand. Mm. And targeting the drug labs. So we weren't just targeting, you know, the crops, which the poor old farmer doesn't get paid for. They were letting the economy continue to work, you know, grow the crops, pay the farmers, turn it into opium. And the minute that it's finished cooking, that's when we'll strike, destroy the lab, and then no one gets paid and everyone hates the Taliban because they don't pay and all this sort of stuff. Um, And it was during one of these... And like they were going into Taliban controlled areas, like some of those early uh, two commando hits into Helmand, like there was NVG coordinated anti-aircraft fire, like it was crazy. Um, and it was during one of these that Todd Langley was um, in Helmand and he was yeah. like, like, I wasn't there. You're back in Australia. Yeah, we're back in Australia yep. doing the amphibious thing. Um, but but from what, you know, what I can, from what I've heard, you know, he was on the roof of a compound trying to conduct a, you know, a fire mission to help another team out. And then he was killed on the roof of that um, compound. Um, and yeah, so um, we were doing the amphibious stuff at the time. And so we were the guys back in Australia. So mm. we did the ramp ceremony when he came home. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a pretty terrible sort of uh, time because now everyone from 6-3 Alpha that was still in with, had been killed except – for me, I was the only one left. And um, we're at Cronulla RSL at um, Todd's Wake mm. and his son was exactly the same age as my son. Mm. And, uh, and it's a scene that I'll never forget. Mm. It was them two running around uh, at Cronulla RSL together. Um, not really, uh, you know, no mm. one, none of them really, I don't know. I oh, know from my son's point of view, uh, he was three or whatever, didn't know what was going on. No idea. Um, no idea, yeah. So that was a really uh, turning point for me because leading up to that, um, I went and visited Jason Brown's family um, when I got back from – in 2011, when I got back from Afghanistan. And, um, you know, his dad was a Vietnam vet. Um, you know, his mum was great. And we had a quiet beer. And then and then his mum said, oh, we went over to um, – Perth and collected up all of his stuff out of his room. It's all upstairs in his room where he grew up. If you want anything, and I was like, oh, all right, we'll go have a look. Cause I was after a, a Timor flag that I'm mm. um, Brownie back in 2003. We're in Timor. Brownie got a Timor flag and he like painstakingly with a Nico wrote all our names and then we all signed it. And, you know, I was the only kind of guy left except for Andrew. So I said, yeah, we'll, we'll go up there. And we went up there and all this stuff was in there. And I was just like, oh, this is just making it worse. And I said, hey, look, um, if you see a flag, um, can I have it? Uh, and they were like, yeah, no worries. We'll keep an eye open for it. And then someone just said, oh, what's that there? And in a big stack of that books, you could just see this tiny bit of rag poking yeah. out. And then I, I just pulled on it and it just kept coming. And here it was, it was this flag. Yeah. And I was just like, yeah, thank you very much. And I ended up getting it framed. And it was in the Commando Museum at Holsworthy for a while. Um, but then we went downstairs and his dad pulled the whiskey out and then I can't remember going home. I can't remember anything. <laughs> I, I just, and I've never drunk whiskey again. So, <laughs> and, and then now Todd, uh, 
Todd had been killed. Yeah. And and so this was uh, after seeing the two boys, I was like, you know, oh man, you know, I'm, this is this is going to happen. Uh, so I put in for some leave, and we're just about to go to Papua New Guinea on a training mission. Uh, so went over there, did the stuff with the Papua New Guinean Army, and while we were there, we hired a light plane and flew to Kokoda, and then walked the Kokoda oh, track. Yeah, right. Fuck yeah. Um, like in reverse. Yep. Um, and it was good. We had we had a guide, but you know, they, we just took off, and it ended up we all went at our own pace. So at a time where I really needed some time to wind down and think. We went to Kokoda, of all places. Mm. I was, I'd always wanted to go there. Oh, yeah. Um, and so I just basically spent five days. You know, it's 95 Ks. We walked over the five days with our packs, and everyone spread out. So I pretty much just kind of walked the Kokoda track by myself. And then at nighttime, okay, we'll meet at this village. Harbour up, yeah. We'll meet there, and the next day we'd all take off again. Mm. It was it was just a good bit of quiet time. And you'd walk past all the old slit trenches, and I was just like, man. And then so when I got home, I took some leave to have a, a think about you know, what was I going to do? Because the statistically, I, I, I basically, I was really thinking that I didn't, there wasn't, a, I was going to survive. Like I didn't think I was going to survive. Yeah. Cause we had another yeah. trip coming up in 2012. Yep. And so, you know, I thought, well, I can't stay in and think about the consequences about my son growing up, son's growing up without a dad and all this sort of stuff. And I can't get out. There's no way am I leaving. So I just come to the, I just can, convinced myself that I that I was going to die and just yeah. to not think about it. Like if you stop worrying about it, it's just going to happen. Yeah. And then which you know is 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 a valid thought because not <clears throat> outside of two commando and SSR, the regular army were losing blacks as well. Mm. Especially 6 area, they fucking Yeah, they lost they eight, copped yeah. a fucking bit of damage over that time. Mm. So, you know, the, your thoughts are valid. And, and that's not a good way to, to think because you know I, I, and what led me to that is because I was surrounded by such good guys. Like mm. I believed in what we were doing. I didn't want any of my mates down. That, well, that's it. That's the failure, failure of you not providing for your mates on the battlefield. And, and if I thought about, you know, my children and that, it's like I would, I would leave. So mm. I just didn't. I'm, you, you're just going to die, so don't worry about it and just crack on. It was not a good way to... Yeah. Yep. So you get off a bit of bit of leave and then you're straight on to 2012 SOTG Rotation 17, third tour to Afghanistan. Yep. And as we know through <clears throat> Muzz's uh, podcast and Troy, another fucking kinetic fucking trip, another very kinetic trip, another helo crash during that trip as well, which yeah. took the lives of uh, Nathaniel Gallagher and uh, a good friend of mine, Merv, uh, Merv McDonald. Yeah, that was the... Um that was the one after. Oh, was it? Yeah. Yeah, right. Gotcha. Yep. Um, but yeah, rotation 17, uh, again, I was in the lead. So Muzz said by this stage, you'd moved up to platoon sergeant and we had a new lead planner, like everyone had shuffled along. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was in, I was in the, um, lead planners team again. Uh, but this time I wasn't the medic, I was the scout and the Dems breacher, um, which was good. Um, it was a really good trip when, in, 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 you know, when you look at Dems and that sort of stuff, because back in Australia, it's very controlled and measured, whereas over there, it's just loose. We, we didn't know how yeah. thick some of those walls were, were, so, you know, you just had to plan for, you know, whatever contingency and, yeah. And so that trip was uh, predominantly, was this just back to a normal fighting trip with the DEA? Yeah, so... um. We were assisting the DEA, so the plan was, you know, using their own integral assets, they could identify where these labs were, the right time to strike, and then we would provide the security. So we would go in, secure the AO, and once it was secure, 
they would then come in and, you know, catalogue and oversee the destruction of, of, of the drug labs. Like, so these guys would still get in a fight and all that, but, you know, security was our, was our job and we'd take our own, you know, 60 mil mortar, long range sniping or whatever the mission profile decided. And a lot of them were decided was by range. So if some of them were so far away, that dictated what air assets we were going to use. So the ones deep in Helmand, um, you know, the DA had their own air assets, these Vietnam era Harry, uh, Hueys and these um, Russian MI8, I think they were helicopters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they didn't really have the range or, you know, I wasn't involved in the planning, so I'm just going off what I believed was happening. But um, so that's when we'd use the V-22 Ospreys and the and the CH-57s, I think they are. Um, I'm not up to date on my um, airframe tab data, but so, you know, they were for the long missions and, you know, they couldn't land on target. So generally we'd have to land out in the dash and there'll be an infill in, whereas a lot of those closer ones, you know, and if we could, those Department of Justice helo pilots, they were awesome. They would land you right next to it and you, yeah, and right. that was daylight. And look, so you hear about, you know, there's been mentioned about how there were daylight daylight raids only in Afghanistan at this stage. Well, that, that applied to the TK Bowl. That didn't apply to Helmand where we were going. It was still Taliban, like country, and we'll do nighttime raids, no problem at all. So generally, if, if you took the V-22s and you would have to land off target – infill in under period darkness, hopefully hit the drug labs at first light, and then you'd either stronghold to the next period of darkness and then try and fight your way out, or you'd conduct clearances during the day, like it all depended. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But if you did the, the daylight missions with the Hueys or the um, MI8s, well, then, um, you know, they only had a limited loiter time because of their fuel, so it was fast. You'd land, run in, you know, destroy the la- the, the lab and then you'd have to get out quick because you had a short window before they ran out of, you know, fuel. So, um, yeah, it was a really uh, kinetic trip. Um, and it was a really good on a Dems wise. There's one particular mission there where um, uh, we were meant to do a fir- you know, la- uh, first light um, dr- drug lab hit and we had to land a fair distance away. So it was a fairly long infill. And as we were moving towards our target, compound we just kept the, the solo guys were just getting hit after hit mm. with their devices finding ieds and there's like no way we're going to make our hr if we keep following these roads so we made a decision that rather than go around this orchard which had a series of walls in it we were going to blow our way through to get there like we'd already gone loud there'd already been contacts i knew we were coming so using the explosives that we had we had to blow through four thick walls uh you know through there'll be one thick wall then there'll be a, an orchard and there'll be another thick wall. So as a breacher, I carried like one large charge, but we'd constructed them in a way that you could cut it in half. So in an emergency, so that you had two medium sized charges. Yep. And then you had a series of lock poppers, which were small ones. We just, you know, like doorknobs and locked gates and stuff. So all these charges are run by initiation leads, which is a lead that you use to set it off. So a big charge has a long lead and then a short charge is a small one. So we decided, hey, so with N and a guy, the breacher from the other team, uh, we decided that, hey, if we cut our charges in half, we've got four medium-sized charges so we can actually go through these compounds to get to our target compounds that are going around. So, we'd, But we only had short leads. Mm. So, <laughs> so there's a minimum safe stacking distance that you've got to stack away from a charge. And so we had these huge charges for these tiny short leads. Yeah. <laughs> and the only protection we had was like a set of clear eyes 
and I had one earplug in one ear and a bone mic in the other <laughs> and would blow a hole in this wall and it would be, at, you know, the size of a bit bigger than dinner plate maybe because these walls were thick and then we'd just attack it with these axes and chop a hole big enough for the whole the two teams to get, get through. through yeah. And then we'd go to the next one. And I just have this memory where it was N's turn to blow a charge and it, and it, he put it on. And then he stood there off to the side and it looked like he was standing right next to the charge. And then uh, this is under NVG with the green light. And then he blew it and he just disappeared in this cloud of dust and the dust clears. And here he is standing there and he just looked like, he looked like Captain America just standing there with his <laughs> surrounded by dust, like in the middle of a huge explosion. I was like, man, this is crazy. Yeah, right. Um, and then, you know, when we would get there, Sometimes the areas were just too hot and you would mm. have to stronghold inside a compound and then the Taliban would move all around you and, um, you know, yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, and obviously during this time we've spoken again on a previous podcast, this is where the fucking Afghan government come up with this fucking stupid rule about uh, day raids only and it kind of fucked on most other, other areas of operation, especially mm. with the SASR and you know, Andy White spoke about it. Mm. Um, but it didn't affect you guys down in Helmand province. No, no way. Yeah. No. Fuck, I can't believe the Australian government even fucking bowed down to it to start off with. Mm. But, yeah, um, there was one occasion there. Yep. So on, on one occasion where we landed, dig the hit, um, destroyed the drug lab, and then we had to stronghold to the next period of darkness so that we get exfil back out into the dash um, where we could be picked up by the V-22s. Um, but this place was just crawling with Taliban. You know, some of the other teams had been in big – Big ticks. Um, we were approach. Our team was approaching one compound towards our area that we were going to like stronghold in. And as we were approaching, all the family were lined up out the front, like they were ready for an inspection. I was like, mm. This is weird. And they were standing sort of in the opening of the entrance into the compound. And as we were coming up close to them, we started pushing out into extended line. Like something's about to happen here. And then this motorbike came out from the middle of the um, compound pulled up behind this, like the mum, the dad, and then the four kids or whatever, and just grabbed the youngest kid, threw it over the seat of the handle, of, or threw it over the fuel tank of the bike, and then just burned off, like using yeah, right. this kid as a shield. Like these these talibs were everywhere. And we're like, oh, you know, what a prick. So he rode off, and then we ended up strongholding into this compound, and then um, we didn't have really a very good vantage point. We were, like, let's say we were the northernmost compound, um. Every, oh, the, everyone was sort of like the 12 o'clock position. Mm. Everyone was spread out behind us. And we were paralleling this long river when you could see out to maybe 900 metres up this river. And um, we didn't have very good vis. But then I looked over the top and there was a, a compound adjoining on the enemy side. So we found some farm tools and we dug a hole through the wall into that into that adjoining compound. And when I got in there, I've never seen anything else like it, especially in Helmand, but there were lounge chairs in there. Oh, was there? And there, and at, and at about knee height, there were yep. these round windows that had fly screen put in them into the mud. Like I'd never seen fly screen in rural Afghanistan anywhere. And we were just like, holy, this is made for it. So we rearranged all the chairs and made up these firing positions and you could shoot through the fly screen, no worries, and it wouldn't kick up dust on this mm. sort of stuff. So... Uh, myself and the other, the other shooter, he had a four one seven, um, seven six two, and I just had my M four, and we set up here watching up this river up to the north, and like we done a lot of long range shooting. We were using the brown tip ammunition, uh, which we were getting off the Americans, which is, you know, it's a really good round. Yeah, yeah. And we were doing a lot of long range shooting. We used to go around at the t- at the Tarrant range there, and you could shoot out to nine hundred meters on this steel plate. You know, you could walk it on within one or two rounds, and you'd hear the the, the ding. You know, the report would come back. So we. Been doing a lot of practicing and long range shooting. 
I remember just looking up this up this riverbed, and the enemy chatter is just crazy. You know, move around to the side, move around. You know, fence them in. Where are they? Where are they? Oh, so they were fucking actively. Trying oh yeah, they were actively trying to find where we yep. were, and so they were trying to fix our positions yep. as well. Yep. And um, and you'd see them. You'd look up this river, and the, it's corresponding with enemy chatter. Hey, you know, call sign, blah blah blah. Be aware to your front. We're getting this. You know, yeah, I can see him. And you, you'd look up this river and you'd see the Talibs crouching behind the walls, you know, between distances of 500, 700 away, looking down towards us. And they would like wave kids across. Like mm. you'd, you'd see them waving with their hands and like a kid would walk out in the middle of the river and just like stand there. And then he would look back at the, look back at the Talibs and they would like wave him, keep like going, keep going, yeah, keep going. Yeah. And the kid would walk a bit further, you know, kid would walk a bit further and then nothing would happen. So they would call the kid back and then the Talib would walk across the river with the kid in front of him. Yeah, right. Until they until they'll disappear into the uh, bushes yeah. on the yeah. left hand side, and then the others would start to come along, and then yeah. we'll drop them. Um, you know, they're armed. Yeah, the, the enemy chatters saying find them. But, you know, they're using kids as a shield. And once those kids were out of sight, and and this went on all day. Like the 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 other shooter G, and me, I, I lost track of how much how much firing we were doing that day, yeah, right. and, and then they'll disappear you know, for an hour or so, and then they'll try again. Another mob would come along and start patrolling, you know, coming down the creek trying to find where we were, and then you'd just repeat. And it, it, it got the point where um, it was starting to get dark and we had to do our exfil um, out to the extraction point once it got dark that um, our ammunition for me was starting to become a worry. Like I still needed enough to be able to fight if we needed to. And if the yeah. helo went down, I was like, oh, so and just 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 uh, to paint a picture, what were you carrying? Like what, uh, was your, what, was, what was the basic load? Uh, I always used to go a bit heavier because I'm a bit of a worst case scenario yeah. paranoid guy. So I used to carry about sort of like nine um, mm. plus the one in. Oh well, that includes yep. the, the one in. Yeah, but um, you know, people say the five, five, six, no good for long range shooting. Well, I, I don't know. Like you could tell what you can tell by target behaviour if it's a good hit, and I. I reckon those guys would argue that point that day. Um, and how and like how far were you shooting out to? Oh, between sort of like five and seven hundred. And it was doing its job. Well, they would target behaviour like they were dropping. So, <laughs> yeah, I love it. Oh fuck yeah, yeah right. So that so the uh, the night four comes and then you guys extract out. Yeah, yeah, they would walk out in the desert and. Harbour up to again. where we were meant to go. Yeah. And the V twenty twos would do their big circle around and land somewhere completely <laughs> <laughs> miles away and we'd all have to run leg it there to get on the back of them. Yeah, yeah right. Fuck. Yeah. Crazy those fucking Taliban using the kids as fucking shields to move into into position. Oh yeah. Yeah. Lucky you guys are good shots. Oh yeah, well there was never it was never like if your kid was if there was a kid even within you, wouldn't even bo- it, yeah. you wouldn't even nah. you had to nah. be completely out of field of view and yeah, so that trip continues on for another. How long's that trip? No, that's another yeah, five, six, five months. Five, about trip. six months. Yeah, yeah. And you guys are, are you guys because you're working at Hellman and where where are you located? Is there a base in Hellman? Uh so we're in we're at, we're at TK, but we'll just find because because Hellman was so far away. I think Murray mentions it a fair bit because he was involved in the plan and he had a better understanding than me. But we used to pre-position at Bastion, Bastion Camp Bastion, which was yep. that um, UK. Yeah, um, so we used the to go famous, there, yep. and then they and then they'd have a full tank of fuel, you know, which would then enable further reach and, um, yeah, yeah, right, yeah, right, and obviously the SASR operating down there in those areas everywhere. Yeah, um, did you ever run into obviously working out of Camp Bastion as well? 
predominantly fucking run by the, the Brits. You ever have any anything to do with their SF sort no. of things? No, just completely no. separate. Yeah, these right? these DA operations were fairly standalone. Yeah, um, and obviously yeah. there's a, there's a there is a video that's circling that's you know throughout the media and etc. There's that DEA agent that got shot. Yeah, and you're dragging you boys are dragging him back onto that Osprey. Yeah, well I think that's dashed where. Is it? All right. I'm pretty sure that was um, that is, in vicinity of that <clears throat> dash area. Because he gets shot in the ass, doesn't he? Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was a previous rotation. I can't really speak. I don't want to say that. Oh, yeah. I wasn't thing. sure if yeah. there's that one or that one. Yeah. So that, so 2000, what was so, 2012. So 2012, but, July. So, I don't know, probably cut this bit out, but the final sort of thing I think is that co- contact that dashed where. Team commander got seriously injured where Corey said he shot the guy on the that's face. The video, that's the video that um, yep. fucking Kyle Schmidt has. Oh, so yeah, where yeah. he ties into all this as well. Yeah, so this is what this is what made me reach out to you was yeah. when you were saying all these different perspectives. Well, I've all got linking own, up. I've yeah, no let's, uh, you know, fuck, I'll even leave some of that. I'll leave that in. So, let, yeah, let's, let's move on to this one because, again, uh, throughout all the other podcasts, Murray – Troy, Corey, and fucking our man uh, Carl Schmidt um, in the US. He's got his perspective on this whole uh, scenario. So yeah, let's let's run through this contact because let's see what you've got to say about it. Oh uh, yes, yeah, so um, it's been covered previously, but basically this was a an area where there was a known drug lab in there, and previous attempts, from my knowledge, to destroy it had failed. Couldn't find it. The, you know, the activity was too heavy, so yeah, casualties were taken. So so we had another crack at it. Um, so this is, was an area called Dashed, and, and on the insurgent, this is the one where as we were coming in, this is a night time, so, um, you know, it's dark, everything's under NVG. As we were coming into the landing, this is when the door gunner and the side gunners all opened up, and that door gunner was going like nuts because there was, you know, a lot of trace and fire coming up from the ground. And he was, I remember looking down and he was like, had that gun and he was firing from the full right of arc at the retail and then swinging it all the way around to the left <laughs> and then just swinging it back, like just hosing. And the door gun, then both the door gunners arced up and I was like, oh, this is going to be a, an interesting one. And then we landed and it was just a sprint, everyone to get clear of those aircraft. Cause yeah. we, we landed, we weren't landing way out in the dash. We were right on the edge of this village. Yeah, right. And immediately there was just, um, we just got bogged down straight away. There were there were skirmishes all over the place. Our team ran straight into the middle of these just random dudes with no weapons, no radios, just standing around in the middle. Like because we were trying to work our way around the edge of this village. You know, on the edge of all the compounds, it's just like animal fields. Just random dude just standing there, and it's like, oh. So we start collecting these guys, and we had a central spot where we were putting them all. And you know, I don't know if it was that mission or a previous one, but. I, there was spooky gunships. Mm. We had the big gunships as well providing fire. And I remember a couple of uh, scenarios where we would be advancing through a village at n- night time and the spooky gunships are firing their, their cannons out, out into the carezes. Yeah, like the right. Yep, yep. So it's, it's doing walking fire. In That's the AC-130s. Yeah. Mm. Um, I don't know if it was that mission or not. But anyway, so, you know, DEA held, held like, hold up because the situation wasn't secure. Um, there was just contacts going on all over the place. And then as the sun came up, uh, it didn't really die down. It just stayed just that level. Just kept on going. And um, that's where D, who got it Kazavakt, uh from the Bushmaster strike back in 2010, mm. that's where he um, was a scout and he 
was moving up wherever, and then the AK, the bush in front of him, the AK barrel poked out of it, and he slugged it out. So he had a four one seven with a twenty round mag, and this guy's got an AK, and then from a distance of about twenty meters or whatever, they just slugged it out until you know D got the drop on him, but he also got hit in the legs. Mm. So he got he got um, extracted, and I think that's when one of the first time Kyle came in. Yep, and in our position, we were let's say we were to the north. Um, as this as this AME bird came in to pick him up, the whole place just came alive. There was just RPG and and rounds just coming from everywhere, and um and I remember I was sitting in a sort of a position behind a low wall, or whatever, and, and the other team member G was probably about three meters to my left, and in between us was like this long, like tuft of grass or something, and mm. rounds just went in between us and cut the gra- the yeah, grass right. off. That Fucking like I remember up. looking at each other, and we both sort of went like laughed, <laughs> and then moved a bit further away from each other. And then, um, and so that was just a case of we don't know where this fire is coming. It's coming from everywhere. Yeah. So you know we had to respond in in kind where we thought it was, and then that bird left, and then we were getting our team, our gunner had moved off into a position, you know, like a like a shell hole, which was great, gave him great cover from the village, but he was getting pizzled from the high ground. He was pinned down, you know, effective fire, you know, one round. So he had to kind of stay there. Our team tried to do a a, mort- a fire mission onto him. I can't remember whether it was mortars or what it was. But um, it made no effect. This guy was still up there. So that's when Murray grabbed the team. Mm. Murray and that team, he mentions yep. it. They went up and took care of that. And then as he came back down, that's when one of the other team commanders goes, I reckon I know where all this has been coordinated from, you know, in conjunction with enemy chatter and all this sort of stuff. So that's when they did the qu- quick set orders were given. Yeah. Uh, Troy did a couple of suppressing or, you know, I don't want to step on his feet here. I'm not a JTAC. I'm not a JTAC. Uh, <laughs> you know, he did a couple of fire missions and then we started moving towards the target compound. Mm. So I don't remember exactly the cardinal points, but let's just say, for example, there's a creek running north to south. Yep. Uh, two teams were going to handrail the creek from the south towards the north, towards the target compound. Our team, we were off to the flank, so we were going to approach from the east at right angles to these other two teams that were handrailing this creek. So the idea was it would all meet at the target compound at the same time and, um, you know, conduct a clearance of, of the target compound. Um, I was a scout. We were, we were pushing across open fields, um, which was pretty hairy. Um, and as, as I came to the edge of the, the fields, um, I came a- across the, like, the edge of the creek that the other teams were handrailing over to my left. And on the other side of the creek, probably about – 80 metres away was the target compound. Mm. Um, just as I was about to, like I was on a knee, waiting for the other team to push up a bit to support my move down into the creek, just as I was about to go in, I suddenly heard all this fire erupt from maybe, it's hard to tell, but like years later, but I think it was about 150 metres off to the to my left. And I looked across and I could see all these figures moving around, all this dust kicking up. So I took another bound forward, just a couple of metres fo- forward, and then I could see the wall that... um that Corey and, and Murray talk about where yeah, the yeah, team yeah. commander, team commander, Corey was the scout and the, Corey went over this wall and the team commander went over the wall and there was a Talib right down there in the gully and he opened yeah. up and, and hit the team commander about a bazillion times. Yeah. Um, and then I happened to look across and then I could see his figures moving around and, and just through a gap in the trees, I could see the, the other teams push up and I saw one of the other shooters 
um, unload into the bushes down in the creek. And then um, he f- he fell back on his back, and I thought he'd been hit as well. But you know, it turns out later he was trying to get a grenade out. And then one of the gunners pushed up and just sprayed the whole creek with his gun. And then that was kind of, um, you know, I didn't need a grenade after that. And then um, so they th- th- those two teams were pushing out, trying to figure out what was going on, trying to secure the wounded TL. And so I, I was still under the mindset, you know, we're pushing on to our entry point to assault the target compound. Mm. So I pushed down into the creek and I went down, as I went down, there was like a little mud hut in the middle of the creek with no roof, like what you might like put a, a pump or something in. Um, and then I cleared that and then I pushed up the other side and then the rest of the team behind me spread out onto the edge of the creek, sort of providing an overwatch. Now, you know, we, weren't, we aren't doing CQB where everyone stacks up real close to each other you know, this is fire and movement across complex terrain, you know. I, I believe that a scout, you know, if, if a scout's got a good team command, a scout relationship, you know, you let the scout go forward, you know. Let him do his thing. You don't let yeah. the command group get yeah. wiped out in the ambush with the yeah. scout. So I was on, on that side, and then as I poked my sort of head out of the bushes on the far side of the creek, the target compound was about 20 metres in front of me, and on the sort of the northeast corner, if you can imagine it, there are all these tall trees on both the inside and the outside and all the foliage was kind of joining together and it would have been the perfect spot for a, a shooter to sit up in there. And because there was just firing going on everywhere and when it's going over the top and above, you know, it's zipping and making the, the bee noises and all, you know, the crack thump and all that, yeah. it's hard to tell what was going on. But at the time, you know, it's years later, who knows, but I, I, re- I truly felt that there was fire coming from that corner of that compound down into the, into the gully. I don't think it was directed at us. I think it was at the other guys. Mm. Um, and there was like a big, tall metal, like um, like a windmill, but it had the blades removed, like some sort of bore. And um, while this is happening, my team commander, like he was a top bloke, he got shot about a billion times on a previous deployment trying to drag a, a, a mate undercover. And, um, you know, he – and, you know, and that he, he had his best – he had his bloke's best interests at heart, you know, and he'd gone through the whole long um, rehab process. Yeah. Chunks of his body was missing. So he, he was a very smart and measured way in that he approached things. And so he was like, hold there, you know, hold there. He's trying to deconflict with the other teams what's going on. Um, you know, and we'll pull back. We've got a potential prior one here. Like he's telling me over the radio, you know, and if this compound keeps giving us trouble, we'll just J-dam it. I'm like, right at. And so I'm like, oh, now I've got to get back across. Like now I was I was convinced that there was fire coming out of that tree. And I thought if I move back, you know, I'm exposing my back here. So I tried to um, – our tool I see, Pete, um, I tried to uh, get on the radio because he had a 40 mil to try and get in. You know, you can, you can drop a 40 mil. It doesn't really give much of an indication of where you're firing from. Yeah doesn't really kick up dust or whatever. So I tried to direct him to drop some 40 mil onto the um, target compound, but he fired two, I have no idea where they went. I just heard this boom in the distance. I'm like, oh, well, and so that was like a decision point. I was like, Ugh. when I got back from that trip, I put a 40 mil on my M4 and I was like, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm not being stuck in this situation again. And so I, rem- I remember just going, oh, and the, I was 20 metres away from target compound, you know, we're not doing it anymore. It's not worth the payoff. Like, so I ended up just withdrawing back and then um, joined the rest of the team and then we peeled back around and, yeah. It was, Fuck, that was a big day. Yeah, yeah. 
And um, how many casualties? Uh, so D got hit in the morning mm. and extracted, and then the team commander was the second one. I was under the impression that a Terp got – an interpreter got hit as yeah, well. Yeah, I think Muzz said that too, yeah. Yeah, but I haven't heard anyone mention that since. So maybe it got mixed up with another – Yeah. But um, but I was under the impression that the Terp got Kazavak that day as well. Yeah, and, it, and uh, you know, moving on to um, Kyle Schmidt's one, this is where I think SF recommended – that AME is to be used f- specifically just for you guys moving out because they were one of the only units that would just fly into the fucking shit storm and do what they need to do, pick up and fuck off. Yeah. And they did it a few times, so fuck. Yeah. Shout out to fucking our boy Kyle Schmidt. Yeah, but that, that trip, even on moving to extraction, uh, one of the other teams got arced up by just some random and Murray and one of the other guys closed in and cleared that position, yeah. and they brought his AK back, and it had an M4 round straight through the middle of the receiver. Oh, no I've got way. a photo of it somewhere, but I didn't want to like, I didn't want to send it to you in case someone thinks I'm claiming it, but definitely wasn't me. But it's a pretty uh, cool photo. Yeah, right. No, fucking yeah. love to see it. Love to see it. So, mate, that was near on the end of that deployment, and then you're back to back to Sydney. Yeah, how's the mind at this stage? Because again, you you know over your time you've Fucking done a lot of shit. Uh, Seen a lot of so shit. So I was just um, friends. Yeah, it was just that that trip just cemented it in there. Like you just you just gonna. I just felt that I was just gonna die. Yeah. Uh, and and with that becomes you know you don't have as much patience as you used to. Mm. Um, and you start to feel um, like, well, I'm committing this much to this. When other, you feel that other people aren't committing as much as you, you kind of like um, get a bit, have a bit of short, you know, patience with them. I don't really know how to describe it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that, the trip ended, looking back on it, that trip ended at the good time. Mm. Like if it, if it kept going, yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, who knows? It's it just <clears> – <throat> all those deployments just sound fucking – Crazy, absolutely crazy, and again, mm. we've had all the perspectives through the other boys as well. And fuck, again, we're just not sure on how there wasn't more mm. casualties, you know, at the end of the day. And we've said this on other podcasts with the other boys. Mm. Um, so you get back to Sydney. That was your that was your last Afghanistan trip. Yeah, that, that yep. was it. Which is probably a good thing for you for mm. mental space as well. Then you're posted to Tag East. Yeah, yeah. so, um, you know, by this stage, um, back in the day, like Tag East, the domestic counterterrorism component uh, of 2 Commando was um, a standalone unit that had its own guys. But um, a few, uh, 2009, everyone started rotating through it. Um, and, yeah. and, and that really, the training and the skill level of everyone in the unit just went up, up and up. Um so this was going to be my first rotation on, on TAG and like the anticipation was pretty high because, you know, the standards are incredibly high. Uh, you're working in Australia, you're, you're working to save the lives of civvies on Australian soil with police. Yeah. You know, there's no time for error. Everything's accountable. Uh, the drills and TTPs are completely different. Everything's high pressure, you know, time sensitive, uh, so there was a lot of, you know, ooh, you know, have you been on team yet? No. Mm. Oh, okay. So there's a lot of, you know, I can't really think of the word. Might have to cut that bit on waffling. You're right. Yeah. Anyway, the anticipation was um Yeah. Yeah. Well and again, like everyone that was on tag, 
seasoned fucking fighting veterans. So you've just all come off fucking kicking down doors, getting shot out, getting blown up, everything. So I'm sure <clears throat> you still got that high in that high volume thoughts of fucking doing the job. And during that time on tag, was there any anything that was looking like getting spun up? Obviously, during that time, Lint Cafe kicked off in oh, 2014. Yeah, yeah, that was when we were on team the second time. Yeah. I can't really talk about that because that's a bit of a sensitive. No, no, exactly. But, I'm sort um, of saying like that's uh, yeah. when a time you know you guys could have got spun up, but you didn't because it became a bit bit of a dick swing competition <laughs> between the cops and yeah. But that's that's all public knowledge. But that first um, that first tour of tag, um, I'd never been on before, mm. and then um, I got back from the 2012 t- trip, had two weeks leave, and then I had to get I had to go on a promotion course, and then once I'd done that. I then got a call from my new TL saying, um, hey, you're going to be a 2IC. I was like, yeah, awesome, 2IC on um, TAG, unreal. And then a couple of days later, he gave me another call saying, um, hey, I'm going to Afghan on a private security short notice, short-term, you know, yeah, personal security yeah. detachment gig. Um, you're going to be TL for the, the lead-up training. So the lead-up training is very intense. You know, you run through all the profiles, land, sea, air, all, all the forms of transport, hostage recovery. You know, I'm like, oh, man, nice. So a couple of weeks ago I was a scout. Now I'm a, a team commander. I'm like, I've got to bring my own A game here. So I really tried hard. That was a really intense time for me to just, like, not fuck anything up. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a massive learning curve. And um, all of my team, none of them guys had been on tag before either. Uh, so all of us were just like, man. And there was no sort of, um, like, all the – senior guys and, and all the team, other team commanders had all been on team before, so they just rolled straight into it. There was no sort of lead up for the lead up training, which mm, is what I mm, kind of wanted because mm. I'm a bit, you know, a bit dumb. But, um, yeah, I really worked my ass off not to fuck anything up. And it wasn't until near the end of the lead up training before we came online and I think Muzz cut me some slack and he, he chucked me over one of the senior operators to be my 2IC. Like <laughs> that, yeah. just, that just really uh, – Eased the pressure yeah. somewhat. Um, but, yeah, there was one time that I remember, or two sort of incidents that stand out, is the chief of army, the infamous General Morrison. Yeah, uh, right. He came to Holsworthy for a demo. So this is no secret. We've got, all, we've got an aircraft that we practice in. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, so we did the usual demo. He puts his PPE on, sits in the aircraft, it's all blacked out. We do an NVG assault with, you know, live ammo and all this sort of stuff. Save the lives of hostages. Great demo. And then anyway, uh, we're standing out on the wing afterwards for the chief of the army to um, address us. And he's standing there with his body armor on backwards, like <laughs> he's got the big grab handle at the front and like it's choking him. And, he, and his words were, I had no idea you guys did this. Bullshit. So the chief of army, General Morrison, had no idea about the capabilities of the domestic counterterrorism. Didn't he know? Like, what did he think this giant thing was that he's come out and seen before? Like, and, and the, and the armor, like that just, that might just, yeah, he was an idiot wearing his armor backwards, but that just sums up when these guys reach these positions. Just don't care. Well, no, no they're surrounded by sycophants. So we yeah. probably put his armor on and yeah. said to his aide de camp, how do I look? And the yeah. guy, instead of saying it's on backwards, sir, yeah. they went, oh, you're the best. That's yeah. great. That's the best armor I've ever seen anyone yeah. wear. And so that was a bit of a, um, bit of a laughing point, but sad as well. And then there was one time where we, um, assaulted old Parramatta jail. We did a, a helicopter assault force. Mm. 
Um, these are the sort of standout things that I'll, <laughs> I'll laugh about. Um, and Parramatta Jail is really big. And, you know, it was NVGs. We had NVGs, you know, gas masks, all the tools, everything. And we land by half, and then we had to clear the whole jail. There's a lot of jail cells in there, and um, it's all blacked out. Everyone's getting a bit fatigued. Anyway, we, we broke up into our, you know, battle pairs and all this sort of stuff, and then um, me and this other guy, we cleared one's, cleared a cell, and as we were coming out, I was the last man out. A mattress fell over and locked, pushed the door shut. So those old jail cells, when they shut, they automatically lock. <laughs> So I got locked inside this jail cell and the rest of the team oh, just no. started assaulting, kept assaulting down the hallway. Yeah. And I just had this vision of like, um, you know, because there's no way I was going to get on the net and say, hey, come back and let me out because that would be a carton at least. <laughs> I'd rather die in this cell and just be some dusty skeleton that they find, you know, years later. I'd end up like getting my pistol out because the walls are really thick, getting my pistol out. It's got a torch on it, arms length and just like waved it out in the hallway like, hello. Hello, come back, somebody, and ended up my tour. So I ended up like, Ugh. this guy came back and re- released me. Uh, That's fucking awesome. Yeah, it was <laughs> funny at the time. So over the next couple of years, obviously doing uh, a bit more tag stuff. You did a bit of stuff over in the UK uh, on Long Look, mm. 2016, bit of Iraq stuff. Yeah, and. What else we got? What else we got? 2017. Uh, yeah, instruction on uh, section course. 2014 was the big year. Um, 2014. So. I don't think the whole lot, I don't know. Yeah, no, it's all missed out on my one. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, right. So I can just, you can yeah, cut it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Run us off. Run yeah, so uh, 2013 was on tag, and then 2014, uh, I went on what, what I call my second Rio. So to become a qualified team commander, you've got to do a long suite of courses to get a supervisor ticket, you know, and your CQB, your DEMS and all that sort of stuff. So, and that's normally run in conjunction with the Rio. So 2014 is what I call like the second Rio. So um, first of all, you instruct on the selection, which had changed dramatically again from when I was on it. I'm not saying it's better or worse. It's just they're, they're nailing it down to like mm. a real fine science. And then you and then you start your supervisor courses. So you get a lesson, you know, you get theory lessons, you get practical lessons, you, you get assessed in being a safety supervisor, you get assessed in running a range, you know, and you and you're delivering these lessons and these range practices to the Rio. So, you know, not only are you being assessed, but you're also, you know, you've got to develop your own leadership style and and you know, you're incredibly fatigued. Like in some ways the Rio's got it easier, you know, like they can they do their training, get smashed and then knock off, whereas the the trainee supervisors you know they gotta organize the next day's training clean up the range get everything ready you know and it's a really intense time and it's it's a big it's one of those career um you know milestones where that was oh yeah that was the year i did my supervisors um yeah gotcha um and you know I'm a bit slow on the computer stuff. So, you know, there were some nights there where, you know, I was up giving the first theory lesson the next day and I would be up literally all night doing PowerPoint lessons till about, you know, three in the morning. And then you'd just lay on the couch <laughs> in the grots and just toss and turn and get bit by mosquitoes. And then you go open up the, the, the lecture room the next day and you haven't slept and everyone wonders why you're grumpy and you've got no patience. And so, well, you know, it, it's a really intense time and it's very, you know, it's, it's, it's a real turning point because you're trying to develop your own leadership style. Mm. Yeah, mm. And, and the Rios remember stuff forever. Like, I fucked heaps of shit up. I, you know, made heaps of mistakes. And, yeah, of course. Um, you're only human. And, uh, you know, 
when you're with a bit of experience, you look back and go like, oh, geez, I didn't handle that all that well, but that's just all part of um, learning. And, and the, the CQB course in particular, like um, the one I did in 2009 was run by an original Tag East guy, an old 4RR guy. <clears throat> and, you know, he ran it the way that his, his was, you know, and it was all it was all about being able to, you know, conduct drills under extreme pressure, um, you know. Yeah. It, it was very – and there was coaching – but there just wasn't that, you know, here's the coaching. Did you get it? Not too bad. And, and you know, it was very high pressure, high yeah. intensity. Um, whereas the one in 2009, it was no comparison. Like um, not only were the weapons and the TTPs and the drills and the standards, operating standards, all this sort of stuff different, but the learning was constructed differently. It wasn't just so much a sink or swim course. It was like, you know, periods of learning, then periods of pressure, and then a combination of the two, you know what I mean? Uh, it was completely different. There was no comparison between the two. So, you know, when I hear um, when I hear guys, you know, it's been mentioned that guys go from two commander or four hour over to Perth and then, you know, guys say like, you know, oh, the Perth training picks up where two commander finishes. It's like, well, two commander's training and TTPs are developing that fast that, if, if you were in 4R, you've got no idea what 2 Commando is doing now. Like, your ideas are outdated. Like, even mine are outdated. Everything's moved on again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Um, so, you know, the comparison in a few short years, from 2009 to 2014, like, and, and the instructor development training was was amazing. Like, I learned so much new stuff, and that's where I kind of realised at CQB and close quarter, you know, shooting is what I enjoyed training, doing, yeah. instructing, and, you know, yeah, it was it was a really tough and intense year, 2014, but at the end of it, you you know, which which led into 2015, my second year on tag, like I wasn't worried about anything that happened then. Yeah. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. <clears throat> so in 2015, mate, you get a bit of a, a relaxing trip over to the UK. Yeah. Uh, hang um, out with uh, Tutu SAS. Yeah, so an exercise, um, long look, Tutu SAS, Um for, you know, because we were in TAG at the time, it was a DCT, HR, hostage recovery, like position to go over there and just have a look around and see what's going on. And uh, it was really good. I, I don't want to talk about it too much because I don't want to jeopardise anything. Yeah, of course, but, yeah. um, was there what, as well? No, nah, he went to Kansas. Oh. That's, one, that's right, he went to yeah. the Canadians. But one thing that I came away with um, were, two, were two sort of major points. One was um, I was so impressed by the way that the UK government and the police, like, supports and values the hostage recovery mm. capability that Tutu brings. You know, they've got a long history of um, – They do, yeah. Of, Live you history. Know, yeah, of terrorism yeah. attacks and hostages and stuff like that. And, and the police and the government value them. Yeah. Like, here in Australia, we haven't, you know, touched wood, we haven't had that experience. So when you're doing these – Should have. When you're doing these exercises mm. – Sometimes the police are like, oh, we're going to do this, and the mm. government's like, oh, we're not going to. Over yeah. there, they're just like, two, two, do it, just take get it, get it done. You know, yep. to top cover's not a, not just a throwaway slogan yeah. over there. Their government actually values and supports them, uh, and that was a marked difference to what we yeah. have here. Um, and the other one was, um, it was good because you know I participated in range shoots. You know, I got to see their CQB course that their Rios go through, and it was good way of measuring what we were doing and. You know, two commanders on the right track. Mm. Um, you know, everything was of equal standard. Some things they were doing better, some things we were doing better, and all of that was purely because our rangers were new. Like, it's no secret 
um, the UK boys were getting their ranges refurbed. It was in the local paper, so I'm not giving anything yeah. away there. Yeah. Um, you know, so a lot of our training was better purely because we had the ranges. Like the the training facilities at Two Command has got it's like it's not matched anywhere. Um, so it was a really good trip. They, they were great hosts. Um, and yeah, it was a, it was a good and it reinvigorated me a bit because by this stage I was a little bit you know getting a bit tired of it. But after going over there and realizing that we were on the we were on the right track, we were mm. on the right thing. So yeah, yeah. No, good. I was just sure it'd be a good good trip away, and mm. I'm sure you would have had a few drinking stories as well. Yeah, well, I um <laughs> got heaps of time off. Climbed, went out to Penny Fan where they do their yeah, um, yeah, yeah. selection, and yeah. climbed all the mountains. It was summer, yeah, so well. you know I couldn't go in winter. But um, you know, climbed heaps of mountains. Went out to um Wales and climbed Mount Snowdon and. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Right. Um, so you get back from the UK, your you know training slash piss drinking trip mm. and hiking trip. Operation Okra 2016 Iraq uh, hostage response team lead trainer, fe- February to August. Yeah. So um, at Baghdad, buy at the buy app. Yeah. So I was um, buy app. I was in Bayat the whole time, the Baghdad National Airport, and I was the lead trainer for the coalition contingent that was to advise and assist the hostage recovery mm. team, hostage response team, they call themselves. Um, so this sort of had two components to it. One was to run some courses and day-to-day training, and then the other component was like to advise in their actual uh, TTPs if there is an incident. Um so the courses that we ran were for qualified counterterrorism service operators. So these were Iraqi SF guys who mm. wanted to specialise in HRT and, and work out at BIAP. Uh, the, so the first course I kept like a real um, – no, so I was in a position like – I was a few years away in seniority to run in my own CQB course back in Australia, but here I had an opportunity to run two in Iraq. Um, so I, the first one I – you know, probably verged on micromanaging a bit because I just I just wanted to make sure that it, it, it was right. Mm. Um, you know, I had a team of Belgian, uh, Dutch and Norwegian SF and I had some supporting elements from the ODA, uh, medic, providing medical assistance so we could run all these, uh, you know, U-Butte range practices. Um, and it was a really good time. So the first course ran pretty tight and the second one by that stage we're happy to step back a bit and let the Iraqi HRT and COs do, you know, a lot of the training. Uh, that, that was a really good trip because we got so much range time because, you know, when they're yeah. shooting, we'll yeah. join in, you know, we'll go there and half an hour before they were due to turn up and use the range. Like it was just a really good relaxing, you know, it was just, it was just me and one other two commando guy and then this team of coalition guys. Um, and again, you know, we'd all do shooting competitions and you would assess the other guys, CQB, you know, from other countries and again, it just confirmed that two commander was on the right track and, you know, we're holding our own and yeah. everything was good. Yep. Um, that, that was a, you know, really good trip. And the standout memory there is some of So when we were running these HRT courses, the punishments that the HRT NCOs would dish out to the uh, trainees when they, you know, fucked something up, oh, it was hilarious. Like, yeah, right. Like one guy, you know, you get these people, they just can't stop smiling. Yeah. You know, one guy. So obviously if he's smiling when he's, you know, just fucked up, it's because his mouth muscles are weak. Yeah. So we've got to strengthen him. So that he picked up this <laughs> bit of wood off the range, you know, like a busted pallet they used to use to hold up a target or whatever. And he had to spend the next two days biting down on this piece of wood. So this guy was running around Fuck. doing all his shooting with this piece of wood jammed in his mouth. 
<laughs> and, uh, like another time they shot a hostage, like so you've got your hostage target mm. and then your terrorist target, you know, one of them shot the hostage. So when we stopped for lunch, uh, they had to do a funeral, a traditional Iraqi oh, funeral procession. So <laughs> they made this stretcher out of these big beams of wood, covered it with sandbags, and so while we're all having lunch, they're just doing circles around us, singing these, you know, yeah, laments. The, yeah. And then they had to dig a had to dig a grave in this rock hard ground to bury this uh, hostage. That you know, it was, it was pretty funny. Yeah, they were pretty imaginative. Yeah, right. So how, how long was that deployment for? Uh, it was about six months. Six yeah. months? No, that's not yeah. In, yeah. Hot old place, uh, Baghdad. Yeah, well, I left uh, around August as it was starting to get mm. really hot. Mm. You know, when the place is really starting yeah. to dry out, that's yeah. when we were out. And, I was, and someone lit. So we were working at the Rangers um, Saddam's Palace near yeah. south of Bayer. Yeah, I went there. And there's all the yeah. big reeds and the yeah. lakes. Yeah. And someone burnt it all. In August, so not only was the temperature going up, but it was just a land of black I, I remember that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can see the fucking smoke from uh, the city. Yeah. Um, and then 2017, you obviously you back to Sydney again after that. Mm. Um, and this is where I started to come to the conclusion that um, the idea of me dying, I wasn't accepting that anymore. Mm. That's it, I, yeah. I didn't think it was a worth it. A cur- causing yeah. it because as we were starting to see, like the loyalty wasn't mm. a two-way street. I gave everything – to the company, the regiment, and the army, and now they're trying to find any excuse to burn anyone, do yeah. people over, yeah. and you know they're starting to affect out. Yeah, the reach down was starting to affect training, and it was just like you know this isn't acceptable to me anymore. So I was starting to lose motivation. A lot of the original punishers were rapidly disappearing. Mm. Um, children needed me. I was starting to get injuries. So when I got downgraded, I sort of started to plan my um, discharge because they said to me, you could get med downgraded for this. But then I was like, man, that'll, and they're like, it'll take about 18 months. I'm like, I'm not going to hang around. So commando's not the place that you hang around to get downgraded. Like if you can't be on the tools, you just got to get out and, and go. So I, um, after surgery, I got up to the um, minimum um, that you need to get normally discharged like med class, mm. J, whatever it is, and then um, put my discharge in um, for a couple of months later. So you um, put your discharge in 2018? Yeah, and then so leading up to that, um, I was involved in this Philippines activity. So mm. exercise Balakatan, it's an exercise that happens in Philippines sort of every year. Uh, 2017, while I was downgraded, I went over and did the recce um, with the Philippines, and I, I went over with this – this old four R original called Mick Sloman, and he had a bit of a um, he had a bit of a reputation, like because uh, he used to really work his blokes, and he was a bit wild, and you know, so everyone's like, "Oh, you're going on." So I was going over to do a ten day recce with Mick Sloman. Everyone's like, "Oh man, I didn't know him. I'd never worked with him before." Um, and he worked his way up through the ranks, and he was now a major. Mm. I transferred over to officers, and he was the the I the, you know the IO the International Engagement Liaison Officer. So. Him and I went over there and we met up with the MARSOC and the SEALs and the ODA and, and did this planning conference and the recce's of how Balakatan 2018 was going to run. And so for 10 days, we were just driving around in a van with this Filipino driver around the Philippines doing recce's. And I never had a problem with Mick Sloman. You just had to not be late and bring your A game. And I, and I guess he chilled out a bit a lot in his old age. But he would, once we'd knocked off, he would drink. Like this guy's in his late 50s. He would drink. 
till three o'clock easily the next morning every night and then <laughs> be, be fit go. as a fiddle like yeah. nothing. And I was like a lot lightweight. And I'm just like, man, I'm going to bed. He's like, ah, you're weak. <laughs> yeah, I am. And then, uh, <laughs> and then, yeah. And then, so that was the recce, just 10 days of driving around Philippines, drinking beers. And, mm. and then he ended up, he'd been having ongoing brain tumors since like 2016 or something. And he ended up passing away last mm. year or something. Yeah, right. Um, so then 2018, uh, the exercise proper was happening. So we took over a sniper contingent and assault team. I was the team commander for that. And then we had a planning element. Um, and we went over and participated in the, in the exercise. And so we were working with the Filipino SF, you know, their light reaction regiment, yeah, yeah, the yeah, scout yeah. rangers. And these guys were all fresh from combat fighting the insurgency in the South. Yeah. A um, lot of fighting down there. Oh, some of their stories were like crazy. Like I've seen some of the videos. Fucking yeah. Oh, Jesus. Some of these guys were like, they were good little guys, and we we ran some um, because I was the assault team commander. We did a period of training beforehand. You know, we took them for some good range practices and all this sort of stuff, and then the planning phase. And we did a series of full mission profiles, and then um, that was kind of like my final. I knew that was my final gig in the army before I was on my way out. So I kind of like really like enjoyed it. Mm. You know, we made the we made the use of the ranges over there, like for our team to do their own sort of stuff, and yeah, it's really good. Yeah, so then uh, obviously 2018, discharge. <clears throat> yeah. That's it. That's the end of your military career. Well, I, um, I had a couple of senior NCOs in the regiment sort of look out for me and they, when I said I was out for these reasons, they hunted around and found me a couple of choco positions mm. that I could fill as a choco, but, you know, it just didn't work out. Um, like one of the main reasons I wanted to get out was to spend time with my children. I reached mm. that age where they needed me. Um, and the injuries, and then also too, um, I just didn't want to work for the senior leadership anymore. Yeah, yeah. As we know, that warrior culture, they wanted that fucking cancelled. Yeah, well, the warrior culture got him, General, you know, Angus Campbell, the warrior culture culture got him to where he is, mm. you know. And, you know, I, it, to me, it just looks like petty resentment and jealousy. So what, how, how long did that guy spend in SASR? What, two or three years or something? And then mm. he never came back? Like, what does that What does that tell yeah. you? And then it's just petty resentment and jealousy. Like, so he was just never part of a high-speed unit like the Punishers or the Bush Rangers or any of these other groups that he's been targeting, you know. We didn't look, you know, what they wanted was, you know, officer worship. War, war, officer worship culture. Mm. That's what they wanted. They didn't want a warrior culture where everyone just looks up and just loves them and, you know, never calls them to account or holds them responsible for their decisions, you know. And when I mentioned earlier about, like, sycophants, like, how – where does – where's the logic in stripping the medals off everybody except for yourself when you've got that medal for the actions of the people that you're targeting? Like, it doesn't make any sense. And not – and did any of his underlings and his aides like say to him, do you think this is a really good idea, sir? Or, or did they just go, yes, sir, this is the greatest. Now please sign my PAR on how good I am. Like, I don't know. And I was like, I, I don't know. that's I, how it is, mate. I don't <laughs> want to work for these guys anymore. I understand that officers have got a um, implement change box that needs to be ticked, but, you know, it was just time time to move on. And, yeah, I don't know if you want to cut that out. It feels like a bit of a fucking <coughs> No, mate, I'm leaving that in. You know why? Because it's coming from a fucking operator. <clears throat> yeah. And not even that, not majority of our listeners 
They know exactly what's going on. It's it's a fucking joke, mate. And unfortunately, a lot of it is uh, the the effects of political correctness. Mm. Yeah, but well, they're they're so far removed from actual combat. They are. Like, yeah, they got no fucking idea, yeah. and they never will. Mm. Uh, again, you, I saw the the pays come out the the what the CDF gets paid. He, he's high. He's the most highest paid politician. Well, this is mm. this is the problem. He is a politician. Yeah. Yeah, where he and shouldn't the, be. The problem He's is, f- the problem is they pick the guy that they're going to hand over to. Yeah. So you know, like, what do you think of this policy? Oh, I don't like that one. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I know. You know. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. They don't. Yeah. Anyway, fuck the government. That's mm. that's my views. Anyway, I don't fucking care. Um. All right, mate. Fuck. We've been talking for a good three hours and twenty minutes. This has been absolutely fucking incredible. Uh, you've had a fucking distinguished career within the Defence Force, mate, especially starting off as a young 17-year-old fucking riding your 250, 95 fucking Ks. F- failed maths in your <laughs> 10. Fa- yeah, maths. <laughs> From lack of attendance. Sleeping at the servo, waiting for the fucking bread man to come <laughs> fucking pick you up and drop you home to, you know, become an infantry soldier, getting back out, having a year off, getting back in, thought, fuck it, I'm like fucking, I'm sick of fucking walking. Which is a fair fucking call, especially the labs, mate. You get those twenty-four hour fucking ration packs. There's fucking mm. peas, corn, fridge. There's fridge in yeah. That. There's a fridge. There's fucking those big giant rice packets. It was mm. fuck. We used to live off those, you know, the the cowboys giving us fucking ration packs. Um, and then you decided to fucking step it up a notch and fucking go. Uh, tried SF. Obviously, your fucking heart wasn't in it when you tried that first time for SASR. You thought fuck a year later, I'm going to give it a crack again. Went to commando and. Just the career you've had within the two commander, mate, as you said, fuck. On previous podcasts, we've had the boys on. They've told us all these stories and, again, how there wasn't more casualties and more losses within the SF community. It just shows the the training and the dedication you boys fucking had um, to, you know, fucking knock out a few fucking shitbag Taliban. Um, Just quickly before we touch on the last couple of questions that I have – your thoughts on the Afghan withdrawal? Um, it was handled uh, incredibly badly. Mm. Uh, like if you if you deep if you dive deep into it, like withdrawing the military before civilian assets, um, like that just doesn't make any sense <laughs> at all. Uh, without getting into American politics, there mm. just seems to, be, in my opinion, there seems to be one side of politics that just wants to have continuous, small, never-ending. Mm. Wars, mm. and and then there's another side that kind of wants to end it, you know. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and it just so happened that the side that was running it during the time of the withdrawal was the type that we just want endless trickle it's crazy, conflicts it? around the world. Um, whereas everyone expected the other party, uh, yeah, Donald Trump, mm. they expected him to be the warmonger and wanted war here yeah. and war that. He's the one just wanted business. And he, uh, he's the first guy that didn't deploy U.S. troops. Oh, yeah. You heard it here, Phil. <laughs> but um, I, I just think um, I I, try, I really feel for the so some of the the NIS I think they're called the Narcotics Interdiction Service. Mm. They mm. were the Afghan partner force that we used on the DEA, I, and the, some of them are really squared guys. Um, you know, th- not only were they you know, dedicated to a, like a freer Afghanistan, but they were intelligent guys. And sometimes when we made a bit of a, like a, a cultural gaffe, which would have upset the, um, the local TK, um, 
PPRC, you yeah. know, any excuse for them to crack the shits with us and stop working, they would. Whereas any time we sort of did something a little bit culturally insensitive and we realised our mistake, I remember a couple of times I did a couple of things wrong. I'm like, oh, sorry, mate, I didn't mean to cause offence. They were just like, it's no problem. Like, we get it, you know, it's no problem. And I really feel for those guys just slowly being hunted down. Like and I was tracking the vice president of um, Afghanistan for a while because oh, he, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. he took off up north and, and married up he with did, um, yeah. Masood's son and they had a bit of an enclave there and I was hoping those guys don't get overrun but I've kind of lost track of what those guys were doing because they were, they were good Afghans, you know. Yeah. Um, so th- that makes me sad. Um, you know, a- in regards to the effort that we put in and was it a waste? Well, I don't know. You can't predict whether you're going to win a war when you start it. I, I feel more sorry for the guys – like those NIU and, yeah. and, and that Masood, I feel those guys. Like, as Jason Brown said, you know, when he would be lectured by some, you know, uni student chick at the Kujiara cell, like, oh, you're never going to stop terrorism. And he goes, well, it's I, I, these are Jace Brown's word. He goes, I treat international terrorism like world hunger. Mm. You're never going to stop world hunger. Like, you're never going to yeah. stop it, but yeah. we can try and, we can, you know, feed, feed a couple of people while, you know, and that's just the way I look at it. And, I kind of it came at a time where I nothing surprised me anymore. When mm. that draw it, when that withdrawal happened and the chaos, it was at a point where nothing surprised me. Yeah, I was just like, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's no surprise. Yeah, cynical, you know, incredibly cynical about a lot of things. Yeah, but, um, yeah. No, thanks for that, mate. <clears throat> mate, as I said, we've been talking for a good time. I'm, I'm pumping up. You know, people listening right now, this is just been fucking super cool especially to give that cold cav side of things we haven't had a, a bloke on from or we have had a cav guy but not to the extent of you know deploying and fuck even got a bit of time on the gun and putting a couple of 25 mil into a, some taliban which is good always good to hear mm. mate um i've got a couple of questions now first question is you know what advice can you give to people especially you know maybe some young dig or young some young trooper or you know, someone inspiring to become a two commando operator. What advice can you give people to keep on keeping on, you know, and complete those goals that they've set and, uh, you know, get it? Uh, so first of all, joining the army in general as like a young bloke, uh, like you'll get in and you'll pass. Like the, the, the biggest thing that I see where guys go astray is when you get to your unit, like fall in with the right crowd. Like there's all different crowds. You know, there's a long list of them. There's like the piss heads. And then there's like, you know, the, the people that have realized they've joined and it's just a huge mistake and they just can't wait to get out. Then you've got the lazy guys that are going to hang around forever yeah. and just never get out because it's an easy meal ticket, but they will avoid and shirk all work. Then then you've got like the professionals that do absolutely everything except including the terrible stuff like drilling that to their utmost best. And then you get like, um, you know, the, 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 I don't know what you call them. What have we got here? The Reggie ones. You yeah. Know, like they're all interested in pomp and ceremony and career progression and getting further, you know, the getting, getting promoted faster before yeah. you're even competent at something. I just want to get promoted yeah. again and again. They're only interested in stuff that's going to make them look good. You know, they're great on parade, but you get them outfield and they're terrible. CDF. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then you've got, you know, the bush soldiers that only care about going field. And warfighting, like Todd Langley, perfect example. Yeah. I never saw him in polys once in three hour, never. Uh, in one hour, sorry, the whole three years, I knew him there. I don't know how he did it, you know, and that's all he cared about. And in regards to SF, like I'm not the smartest, definitely not the smartest guy around, and I just took it 
a, a, a little step at a time. So at the end of that 2000 trip with one hour, everyone's like, we're going SF straight up. I was like, well, no, I need to put some weight on. I definitely need to grow up because I was still crazy kid. Um, you know, and I'm going to, well, what's SOTG doing now? You know, long range vehicle patrols. Well, I'm going to go to CAV, learn something different. And j- jumping around in the army was good because it guys that just spend their whole life in infantry or, you know, SF or whatever, mm. they don't understand the rest of the army works. And everyone in the army thinks that their, or everyone in the defense force thinks that their service, their corps, their regimental battalion and their subunit and their section, they're the only ones working and that everything revolves around them. Like when I went to the cab and they were like, they thought they were like the main effort. I was like, what? The infantry's main effort. <laughs> it's like, well, everyone thinks they're main effort, you know? So, um, you just got to, if you want to jump around to vary your experience and work towards goal, that's fine. And then, we, you know, just slowly chip away at it. And when you're on selection, seven weeks when I was on commando selection, seven weeks is a frigging long time mm. just getting beasted. Yeah. And there were some really difficult parts in the middle there where I was just like, oh, I'm just over this. And the way I got through it was, well, um, I'm just going to, if you pull off, if you pull out halfway through selection, it's just nothing at the time when you get home for about one day, it's going to seem like achieve something. But six months later, it's nothing. You just, yeah. You're just that guy that quit. Yeah. yeah. So when it was really tough around there in the middle, you know, that hump mark on, on selection, um, I'll just think, you know, I'll just, I'll make it to the end of selection and involuntarily bin when it's over. And then, okay. And then I just had an end in sight. And then that activity that I was doing at the time would end. And then, you know, I'll, my mood would change. You're like, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not passing selection so that I can say I pass selection, get a green beret. I'm passing selection to have a long career in SF and bang it in with awesome dudes with mm. awesome kit against terrible people. Like that, that's got to be your motivation. People that go on selection just to see if they can pass it. You know, that's no, not do, right. do the fucking job. Yeah, you, you should be passing it so you can get there, and mm. then become good at it. Um, exactly. So just chip away at it and, and work ethic. Like I always tried to, like, I'd rather be known as a bit stupid or a bit crazy or whatever, but works hard to the end, you know, not the fastest, but you don't want to be, you know, known as, you know, oh, he's a weapon at PT or, you know, super smart, but he's a real DS watcher or mm. he's lazy or whatever. So that's why I always tried. Some, some people might not agree, but that's kind of what I tried to do. Like when there's work parties, stay there to the end, you know, if that guy's, struggling, cleaning the gun or whatever, help. sit down there and help him and yep. just be there at the end. Yeah. And, and you, I know when I was a team commander, I'd rather have guys with good work ethic that would hang around at the end and always look out for each other rather than just these super fit, you know, mathematical scientists, you know, it's just like, ugh. you know, so yeah. that, that's kind of my advice. Get in with the wrong, get in with the right crowd little steps at a time with SF selection and then just work ethic. Yeah. <clears throat> They're the key words there, good work ethic. And that not only applies to military, that applies to anything. Mm. E- even in the civilian um, employment sector, good work ethic. Oh, you know, I run a large security company and, mm. and you know, we lack a lot of good work ethic. Yeah. Um, mate, second question, what is the plans for the future? Are you pretty much retired? Uh, so – I work for myself. Yep. Uh, out in the bush, I yep. don't have any bosses anymore. That's something yeah. that I've that I've come to terms with, and I love it. Like never again am I going to work for well, anybody well else. Well deserved too. And, and never like just the feeling now of not having to explain my mm. actions or to, my personal <laughs> life to anybody. Like it's 
it's awesome. I've done my time, been beholden to others. Yeah. So now it's just I continue to work for myself in the bush, uh, and it's just being a dad. Um, hey, and I've got an awesome new wife. So, that's awesome. Um, and that's my plans for the future. Yeah. Um, well deserved. The boys well deserved, are at an age where they, they need their dads. Yeah. You uh, catch up with any of the boys or anything? Same contact? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, uh, probably not as much as I know years ago, long phone calls. No one really does that anymore. Mm. But, you know, with Facebook and, you know, Messenger, and we, we catch up periodically. Yeah. Um, and third question. <clears throat> now, we've, we've, this is a, a kind of new question. It's been out for the last probably 15 or so episodes. You're a battle hardened veteran. Um, you're a fit dude. And you're, you're a man's man. You're not, you're not, you're not stuck in this. 2022 fucking woke world that we live in. Uh, even though right now, as we're as we're, as we're talking, I do have uh, pink toenails. Ah, you have a child. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have a child. I'm guessing. Yeah. Yep. So I'm no detective, but uh, <laughs> finger, fingernail polish on men is you know. Yeah. There's yeah. a kid at home somewhere. Oh, Got a hold of mum's. Um, I was hungover and I fell asleep. Yep. Uh, that's what I'm going to tell everyone anyway. Um, Guilty obsessions, mate. Tell us something that people don't know about you or, you know, some guilty obsession you have. You know, do you, you know. Oh, I've, got know. A f- I've got a few. Um, there you go. I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm a greenie, but I've got a thing about trees and mm. making stuff out of timber. Yeah, right. Um, so, like, I'll be out in the bush and I'll find, like, a rare tree that was, like, nearly logged to an extinction. I'll get all excited about it and try and transplant it. And, oh, no and I'll way. tell the missus, I'll be like, hey, I found a red cedar up the back. And she's like, so you found a tree in the bush. Good on you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, music, too. Yeah, you um, music. You know, yeah, music. What, I, what do you listen to? Oh, a bit of, you know, metal, punk yeah. rock. And I, I get into, like, the outlaw country, like, the dark yeah, country, rock. like, not in this country yeah. pop stuff. You know, I'm talking about, you know, old, old whaling jellings, like, you know, songs about, you know, co- codeine addiction and yeah. ha- hard liquor and women ruining your life, you know. <laughs> and I've always been interested in like um, playing guitar and that, but I've never really focused on it. But in the last sort of two years, I've really been trying hard, but, you know, these are no surgeon hands, you know, so a big day lumberjacking, you know, cutting trees down and splitting with them. And then you go and play some guitar, you know, the fingers just aren't moving. So yeah. I'm a realist there. Uh, I'm only ever going to be, you know, hovering between sort of crap and maybe mediocre on the guitar sort of yeah. things. But, um, yeah, puppies, I like puppies. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Calves, baby cows, they're good. Yeah. Pets you can eat. Yeah, yeah. man, I'm, I'm, I'm down with that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I've got these bloody cows. My property, my house backs onto, yeah, a bit of farmland. These mm. cows, they, if they get close, they're fucking goners. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, we've got a couple up where I am that we've earmarked to do home kills to turn mm. for us. And, you know, the wife broke all the rules and gave them all names and uh, you know, and they come when you call them and it's like, oh, are yeah. we really going to be able to eat this guy? Yeah. You know? It's like the cans of Coke. <laughs> Remember the cans of Coke with little names on them? Yeah. Be like your... <laughs> the, Packaged meat with a name on it. Yeah. <laughs> this so was it, Chloe. So there you go. <laughs> now, I awesome, don't know how many more you want. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's awesome, mate. Let's appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, mate, again, mate, super appreciate you coming into the studio and uh, sharing your story. It's been super insightful, mate, and um, fuck, good luck for the future. We'll have to catch up again. Yeah. Have, have a brew and, mate, any, any time down in Newcastle, any time. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Too easy. Thanks for your time, mate. Right, Thanks for having us. No, awesome, mate. Cheers. Thanks, Matt.
Wait, wait, wait. Now quickly, just before you go, I want to tell you about Three Zeros Coffee. Now, as you know, I like my coffee how I like my men, long and black. <laughs> However, lately I've moved into the cold brews. I'm loving it, obviously, because the weather here in Australia at the moment is quite hot. So what I've been doing is using the seasoned campaigner pour over filter bags, literally rip open the packet, put the filter bag over my coffee mug, few ice cubes, pour in some hot water, let it cool down, add a sugar or two just to make it sweet, and I fucking love them. Honestly, you get the kick that you need out of the caffeine, and the taste is great. So if you want to get yourself a supply of coffee, head over to 30scoffee.com.au. From there, you can choose whatever you want. You've got the beans, you've got the pour-over filter bags, you've got some merchandise, and just to let you know that a percentage of their sales is – forwarded to organizations that support first responders. So while you're getting your coffee, you're doing a good deed by getting some of this money to the first responders and where it needs to go. While you're there, don't forget to use the discount code 3ZLIMITS. Now look in our bio, you see that discount code, use it, get your discounts. So again, jump on to 30scoffee.com.au and grab yourself a supply.